Betty. Bring me everyone. What do you mean everyone? Everyone! Pivotal Film, a podcast about our 100 most pivotal films. I am Tom Nolan. And this is Mario Ponzio. And we are recording live from the Pivotal Film Studios here, high <laughs> above New Haven. Yeah. Um, Might be known as my bedroom, but <laughs> we're going to pretend it's not. We're going to pretend I do not see my bed. Pizza smells or pizza smells are wafting in here. Which is weird because I haven't had pizza in months. We should we should take care of that in the middle of, in the middle of the podcast. If there's a doorbell ringing and we start just do, there's a pepperoni sound on the mic, it's because we're eating some pizza. I w- I don't like pepperoni. No. Oh, okay. Whatever. Uh, I'm really fucking up your intro. <laughs> that's fine. Okay, so, so um, we are. This is episode 100. Um, we're gonna start our official list today. Um, my 100 movies. Top my 100, 100 movies, movies. Mario's top 100 movie. Um, but first, before we do anything, um, I want to announce we have a website. It is pivotalfilm.com. We have an email address if you want to talk to us. We're so official. It's pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can send all of your favorite fan mail or tell us how much you hate us. That's yeah. fine. I mean, preferably the, quicker, the hate. The quicker get we get to like possible. death threats, the, the happier I'll be. I agree with you 100%. Let's yeah. get some no, death yeah. threats. Yeah. Let's right. get some death threats, people. I want to be a Salman Rushdie of film <laughs> criticism. That is not relevant anymore. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't think so. anyone has read any Salman Rushdie books in the last that's, 50 years. That's for the best. Okay, good. So basically, this podcast is, as you know, us doing our 100 top movies. Now, not necessarily what we think is our 100 best movies of all time, but the 100 movies that were the most important to us and the way that they shaped our belief and view of film. And if you listen to our two-hour trial run... Three-hour. Three-hour trial run, run. you will know that at the beginning of every episode, we are going to crack open a local beer... Uh, give it a give it a taste and report back to so, the masses. So this beer is from Tilted Barn Brewery, out of Exeter, Rhode Island. I actually drove an hour and a half to grab this. Not this beer. I'm going an hour and a half just to drink beer. I fucking don't care that much. <laughs> but this is a raffi, a choc- a coffee oatmeal stout uh, with lactose. Oh dear. And this is actually a, from a farm brewery. So they grow a lot of the grain bill and the hops actually on the farm. So and do know. they have the cows on the farm as well for the lactose? Uh, no. They do have donkeys. So Maybe that's where the lactose comes from. I mean, it could be that kind of milk. Donkey milk. Yeah. So we're going to pop this open. We're going to give it a pour. Some <laughs> that, is, that is thick. That is also on the table. The head is accumulating, folks. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of dead air here. You know what's funny though? I hope we get emails. I hope I leave this in, and I hope we get emails about people enjoying us reporting on the quality of the head of the oh, beer yeah. as it takes I, as actually, it takes shape. I think I think the best course for this uh, podcast to take is that halfway through, people are like, "We do not care about your film opinion. Just All we care about is the beer. people drinking beers." So we become like a five minute podcast. Yeah. <laughs> that people edit it out and put it on YouTube. Yeah, Tom and no. Mario talking about beer. No, of course. Oh yeah, that's right. uh, a lot of head. Should we do a clink? Yeah. Should we do a clink? 
Well, <laughs> we'll eventually get to the beer after about three inches of head. Um, not because of the beer's fault, because of the pour's fault. Ah, that's good. That's good to have the can. Is it? I don't you, know. You I don't, don't like stouts. I don't. So. Yeah, I'm not a stout guy, so I'm not. So it's it's a lot a lot of times from a stout you expect chocolate, coffee, um, an ashiness to it. Uh, mm. I guess you could say. Um, this you, you get, as I said in the first episode, a lot of a malt. Gotta love that malt. There though. is a dark chocolate taste. Yeah, kind yeah, of. I'm getting it in kind of the back of the throat, as, like, like in, a in the finish. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a it's good though. Really it's good beer. Drinkable. I actually, I'm gonna drink some more before we start. Well, that's that's a good idea. I mean, I would not like to waste a beer, especially considering like we're much better at this podcast thing when we drank more. <laughs> we haven't tried it on stouts yet, though. So, oh, yeah, um, there's only one though. All right. So first things first, uh, we did kind of want to go back and talk a little bit more about the movies that didn't make our list. So we each have narrowed you know, all the movies we've seen throughout our lives to our top thousands, 100. Thousands of movies. Thousands of movies. And it's funny because I was looking through, you know, Amazon and Netflix and Hulu just looking for movies to make sure I got everything and like dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's that everything that I wanted to be on my list was on my list. And almost everything that I scrolled past, I had seen even, already. Even all the Netflix original movies? Not the Netflix original movies, but like if you... You saw, you saw Mute like 17,000 times. Like I Duncan see, Jones is a I real... I didn't see Mute yet. A real star. He, we thought he was going to be after Moon. <laughs> and then he made Warcraft. <laughs> so, so yeah, so these are basically... you know Typically, we're going to have a discussion in the beginning about movies we've seen recently or sometimes a special topic. And this is definitely, I think, for the first episode... Just to give everyone a taste of the kind of movies we're going to be talking about, just to really show that we're not two assholes who are. We telling, are two assholes. I mean, yeah, we're not two assholes who. Okay. You cut me off there, you <laughs> son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> that we're just not two people ex- like, just basically telling you what our 100 greatest movies are and why you should like them, too. We're just two people who are expressing 100 movies. That that made that shaped our, our view of film. Sure. These are the movies that, that kind of missed our list that we just couldn't justify being on our list because they didn't have an emotional impact on us or that they're just not good enough to really justify being on a list like this. I think that's 100% right. You know, there, there are movies that maybe for some reason had a slight impact on you. But, and like, that, this is at least how I took it. Just they, they don't really work completely, mm-hmm. um, if at all. Actually, they don't really work at all. Right. Oh, so what's your, what's your first movie that didn't uh, make the cut? So the first movie that didn't make my cut, was, let's just go with the easiest one, the most palpable one to talk about, and that's Black Hawk Down, the Ooh, 2001 okay. Somalian war film uh, directed by Ridley Scott, known for great films such as All the Money in the World, and that's it, really. <laughs> that's all he's directed. And Ken Nolan uh, wrote it. He would go on to write the Oscar classic Transformers The Last Night. Um, I'm always Did that get been... nominated for a screenplay? Oh, fuck if I know. Oscar? Oh, well, I hope so. Transformers movies? I mean, definitely. There, there's, there's, I will say that's a lot about movies that are on my list. There's not <laughs> a lot to say about Black Hawk Down. I've always been a huge fan of war films, um, especially in the more brutal war films. You're going to learn that a lot about me as these episodes go on that Mario likes Mario his blood and guts. Likes a brutal war. And, uh, you know, Black Hawk Down is, is just something that, this is something else that's in the episode zero. It's very confidently directed title of the episode as well well you would hope i mean you would hope that a ridley scott movie is going to be competently directed oh yeah i mean it's not tony scott who doesn't you know no, know no. how to direct something without ten thousand. ridley scott it might not be um necessary in the end 
for it to exist, but it'll be well made. Yeah, and and the thing about Black Hawk Down, I think, is is that you know it 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 has always been a film that I I find to be a very enjoyable experience for how brutal it is. There's other really brutal kind of war movies that either just don't work at all. Um, a prime example of that's something like We Were Soldiers. I think it's just oh, yeah, fucking yeah, yeah. awful. Um, and there's other movies like Saving Private Ryan that are brutal, and that I'll talk about later. Um, that you know actually have an impact on you. Black Hawk Down to me really didn't have those emotional beats, but it definitely captures kind of the adrenaline rush of war. And well, it's, he, it's a great kind of roller coaster. And here's a question for you: Is that because certain war movies have something to say about war, where other movies just want to show you war? Yeah, and that, I think that's the issue with Black Hawk Down. Black Hawk Down, you know, a lot of a lot of the the war movies that kind of pack that big bigger punch, something like The Thin Red Line. Um, same Brett Ryan, like I just mentioned, kind mm-hmm. of have a lot to say about war, have a lot to say about the brutality of war. And Black Hawk Down pretends like it does to me, um, but in the end, it's just kind of watching a really well-crafted film that ends up feeling kind of like a Michael Bay action movie in the end. Yeah, but yeah, just yeah. like if Michael Bay could could direct a movie. Yeah, I kind of felt that way about Hacksaw Ridge a little bit. Oh, I, I hated Hacksaw Ridge. I didn't really like it either, but I kind of liked when they were on top of the ridge. Um, just, when, just, when the battle sequences happened, but I think the large point is that it didn't really have much to say about about war in general. It just really liked Andrew Garfield's character. Yeah, no, exactly. And it kind of so that you know it runs into those the same problems that I think something like Black Hawk Down, where it's just an exercise in showing how well you can you know stage war sequences and, and how bloody you can make it and, and how one, visceral you can make the it. The one thing that I, I give Black Hawk Down a lot of credit for. Um, from, from the war movies that would come out in the 50s to like the 70s, you would have a lot of really great ensemble pieces. Mm-hmm. And I think you lose that as you get into the modern war movie. Um, even Saving Private Ryan, as I keep mentioning, kind of has a focus definitely in a very small pantheon of characters. Whereas Saving Private Black Hawk Down covers kind of like a wider range, I think does that well. So, so that the fact that the war itself or the battle really itself is... Um, not the war. The battle itself is is the character. Sure. Um, going back to Hacksaw Ridge and comparing Hacks something like Hacksaw Ridge and kind of comparing the modern war movie. There's something like Black Hawk Down. There's there's a lot of gory scenes in Black Hawk Down. Like it's not it's a pretty unrelenting film. Mm-hmm. But Hacksaw Ridge in particular, I think this is something I, w- I want to mention because a lot of people love Hacksaw Ridge and I have a problem with that because mm. Hacksaw Ridge delights in its gore. Oh um, sure. The, the scene in particular that, that bothers me about Hacksaw Ridge is, is there's a part where one of the American soldiers grabs like a torso and runs with it as a shield, and it's like that's that's not necessary. I know he's trying to make a lot. Like I felt like Mel Gibson was going to try to say that he was making a statement on war, but he's not. Like, no. like Steven Spielberg made a statement on war with the opening scene, the Omaha scene, and in Same Private Ryan and the other scenes. And I really am talking too much about Same Private that's Ryan. That's right fine now. because but, it's one of your pivotal films. Yeah, exactly. Um, but. Hacksaw Ridge just is like a 13-year-old boy who really felt sexual pleasure in war, and that's my problem with Hacksaw <laughs> well, it's, Ridge. It's interesting that you um, bring up the idea of the, you know, that scene in Hacksaw Ridge and like the pleasure of that scene, and but also the idea of um, showing a small group of characters versus like a really large group mm-hmm. of characters, and that in Hacksaw Ridge, the focus is always on Andrew Garfield, but there in a contained space. Yes. So it's a lot of characters, a lot of things happening in a contained space. There is opportunities 
throughout all of those battle sequences for him to cut away and show something else. And I think, I think and he chooses to stay on a leg or an arm getting blown off almost all the time. And, Anytime and, there's a bomb, he's yeah. showing the ramification, like the very specific ramifications of that bomb. And, and a similar kind of war film, which I think I, I don't think you're a particular fan of this, that I think actually does that decently well is Letters from Iwo Jima. Mm. Um, and I'm not a Clint Eastwood guy. Like I don't I don't think he's a great director. I think he's kind of a lazy director. But Letters from Iwo Jima still pretty violent in its own right. But it definitely takes those opportunities to breathe. And Hacksaw Ridge just doesn't. And I like how this has turned into a discussion about how much I hate Hacksaw Ridge instead of like okay. Black Hawk Down. Just comparing movies. Movie. But Black Hawk Down, you know, just just that's my, my first movie that well, kind of didn't make my And list. So Black Hawk Down is close to the list, and Hacksaw Ridge is yeah. on the complete other end of the list. Yeah. Not Hacks- close to the list. Hacksaw Ridge shares a good space with Dr. T and the women on my list. <laughs> oh, man. Robert Altman can do much wrong. You know what's funny, and I don't know if we need to talk about this now, but Robert there's Altman? not a lot of Altman on our lists. I don't, I don't sure there's any Altman. Is that a generational thing? Maybe. Who knows? I, I just really, really, I, I, from a young age, I saw Doctor T and the Women. I, I kind of knew that that was a Robert Altman movie. Mm-hmm. Like for some reason, that kind of like stuck with me. And hmm. so from then on out, like I'd see, I saw Shortcuts later on. I just instantaneously hated Shortcuts me too. because I hated Doctor T and the Women. I mean, I mean the, if we ever, we, we'll probably maybe eventually sometimes do an A block where we're just movies we absolutely hate. Yeah. Dr. T and the Women will be a <laughs> is movie on that. Discuss. But there's I no, have to rewatch it again. There's no thing. Nashville. There's no McCabe, Mrs. Miller. There's no, no Popeye. What's that about? No I Popeye. Do, yeah. I do have 10 spots for Prairie Home <laughs> Companion. So. Is that okay? I, I kind of I just really doubled down. On you reserve a bunch movie. of spots in the middle, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, okay, good. So what's your first film? All right. So the first one I'm going to mention is... Um, Martin Scorsese's uh, 1999 movie, Bringing Out the Dead. Um, oh, that's a movie I've, I've seen exactly once, right? Yeah, after it came I, out on video release. I, um, I saw it after it came out on video release, too, with a buddy. And I went back and rented it myself um, a couple of times because I just didn't... It's one of those movies I didn't get. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely a movie that I saw the once, I didn't get it. Um, I can't. It's, it's it's so for, out of my mind now. I forgot a lot of it. I know Nicholas Cage is in it. That's all I can remember. Yep. But I do remember having seen it. That a lot of movies I don't get after I've seen them. I, I want. I kind of want to get it, or I kind of want to go back a couple years later, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, kind of understand better. And this is a movie that that didn't strike with me. Yeah, and I think. I'm so not, why does it strike with you? Um, I'm not sure why it strikes with me. It's very episodic, which is weird for a Scorsese movie. It doesn't move in a very linear fashion. Um, I don't remember. I don't think it has a voiceover narration, which is another weird thing. So there's nothing connecting these parts of the movie. It's just Nicolas Cage being sleepy and moving from one event to the next um, with nothing connecting the events except for the people, except for the people in them. Um, and I also think it's kind of interesting from the sense that you get a really subdued Nicolas Cage because he's oh, supposed yeah, to be really that. burnt out. Um, you know, Ving Rhames and Tom Sizemore are much more um, out and free than Nick Cage is allowing himself to be. And it's a very Leaving Las vegas as performance in that regard where he's just kind of within himself, and you just don't get to see that a lot anymore. What what films kind of surround this for Nicolas Cage? Snake Eyes is, is near this I think time. Th- this is like a Snake Eyes 8mm, um, yeah, like you know, what came after that? Um, like a Family Man? Did that come soon after it? I don't remember. I think Family Man's like 
03 or some, somewhere around that. So so basically the same range. Like he had he had that kind of string of of kind of like really dark, um, introspective uh, white male films, as I call them. Um, yeah, eight he's... millimeter being definitely one, and and bringing out the dead being another. Well, I think there was a point where he was still a movie star. Oh he yeah, was he's still coming... like significant, and he could you could put Nicolas Cage in a bunch of. Um, character actors in a movie with Martin Scorsese and that would be a really big deal. And this is 2000 you said? This is 99. 99. So it's three years after. So it's post. Three or four years after leaving Las Vegas. I think he leaves. Yeah. After, yeah. Um, and it's like, you know, post-casino um, Martin Scorsese pre-Gangs of New York Martin Scorsese. So it's right in this weird place where I don't think he's sure what he's supposed to be anymore as yeah. a filmmaker. No, exactly. Um, and I think it benefits from that because there's a really weird energy to it the whole time. And he shoots it Really straight. It's uh, um, a lot of washed out colors, a lot of a lot of blurred colors, um, in and a I, kind of, you know, uh, punch. You know, Paul Thomas Anderson did a lot of this in Punch Drunk Love, to kind of signify like a, a tiredness or withdrawnness, um, and he does a lot of that here too. And there's a there's a there's a pretty decent set piece in there of the ambulance slip, right? And I yeah. I, I do remember that, um, and that's kind of an interesting going off of your point of of the transition of Scorsese from you know Casino and like Goodfellas basically two brother sister films yeah they're, they're they're telling the same story one's good the other one's good fellows just um, one has don rickles in it and the other one doesn't <laughs> exactly and joe and joe bob riggs yeah that's significant. Uh, um and you see that transition to where scorsese just went through you know a couple strings of films where he kind of focuses really heavily on set pieces aviator has a lot of set pieces oh yeah um which we'll talk about gangs later. in new york has a gangs of new york set. is like one big set yeah piece. no exactly um so yeah, I, I, I can kind of see that being on the list that you can like it's a it's a very transformative director having his own sort of crisis. Maybe? And he did, I think he does that in every decade where he's kind of not sure which direction he wants to go in next. So he makes a bunch of weird movies. You know, in he the 2000s, he makes. <laughs> I was gonna say the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, a movie I still don't understand the appeal of. That's because I liked it because I had kids and I could watch it with them. And there was cool stuff in there, so you could say my kids watched a Scorsese movie. And it's definitely a movie he loved. He loved, sure, which is good. I'm, I don't know. I'm not like I can't really speak to bringing out the dead, but there's a string of movies he did. Um, Shutter like, Island. Yeah, a lot of the movies he did in the 2000s, outside of Departed, just kind of felt like exercises. Well, you can. I mean, you can add the Departed if you to, as an exercise if you want to. But that's. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Damon kind of bring this energy to it that brings it out of the exercise oh, no, exactly. camp and into something more watchable. And I would say Alec Baldwin, too. And, like we talk, and, we talk and Mark, about, Mark Wahlberg, too. Mark Wahlberg's fine. For me. Uh, but, like, talking about acting showcases, that's definitely something where Alec Baldwin had a place, which is strange. Strange by not being He hasn't Alec had a Baldwin. place since The Shadow. <laughs> exactly. All right. Um, how about you do another one? Okay. So my next two kind of group together, and mm-hmm. I think these um, kind of going off the, the same path as of violence. This is great. Um... <laughs> 2013's Blue Ruin, by written and directed by Jeremy Soliner, and your next from 2011, uh, written by Simon Barrett and directed by Adam Wingard. Adam Wingard. I didn't see either of those movies, really? so yeah. No, uh, you should get on the Jeremy Soliner train because we're going to be talking about another film of his in a few episodes. <laughs> um, there was, I believe, a, a lot of in. But your next is definitely. I mean, your next is a pure horror film. It's kind of like a, a subversive horror film. The fact that it kind of defies expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is definitely a, a podcast that doesn't give a shit about spoilers for the most part. So your next 
starts out as a typical home invasion movie, something like The Strangers or or that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then right after the invasion begins, uh, there, there's a turn where it turns out one of the survivors, one of the people who's, who should be a victim, actually is well trained for survivor mechanisms, like like has been raised in a survivalist camp, and it becomes an hour-long movie of her just killing the invaders. Which is always um, good. And I, I think you definitely, for me, uh, there, there was this big period in around 2010 and 2011 where, where hyper-violent movies were either going one of two paths. Um, they were either going the path of, of kind of like the, the pointless torture porn, per se, of Saw films, um, or they were going in the same vein, kind of like the Asian horror, you know, going off to Takichi Miyaki kind of hyper-violence. And this, and Blue Ruin, I, I believe, kind of put violence in films, at least violence in horror films and violence in... Um, kind of like the grindhouse genre back on track. Mm-hmm. Uh, your next brings back to me, and this is this is the reason I, I, I love this movie as a horror film, is it kind of brings back on track um, gore, not just as a purpose to to horrify, but it brings back mm. kind of like the slapstick gore, um, the slapstick horror. There's, mm-hmm. there's a scene where the survivalist, the, the heroine, kills one of the, the villains by bashing a blender over her head and turning it on. Yeah. Um, and that kind of like rings to you know early '90s Peter Jackson, Dead Alive, Brain Dead, mm. of of you know using using violence, using very horrific situations. And, and for a lot of points, this movie hits hits beats that are pure horror, but it brings back that that kind of like slapstick and and genuality in horror, um, which I feel is important because I think has re- I think so too. we went down a path too long in horror where violence where violence in horror movies was was horror horrific, in the sense of. It was nasty and brutal, and, and that's what it is in real life, but there, there, there needs to be a separation. People love slasher movies of the 80s yeah. because they're not that. They're, and we're they're gonna, goofy. Yeah, and we're going to kind of talk about violence, I think, when we get to, our, when we get to the list. Um, and that it's nice. Violence in the movies is supposed to be kind of cathartic. Yeah, so depending on the movie, I think Blue Ruin. I want to talk about Blue Ruin in a minute. That's different, but but yeah, no, definitely. No, but there's the there should part. be an emotion attached to it besides what you're saying, like ugh or oh my god. There should be some other kind of visceral reaction to the violence, other than like you said, disgust or Which, or repulsion. And and that's kind of like you know, there, there's always been in entertainment uh, the desire for bloodlust um, in some way. You know, like. Call it primer or whatever. We're not going to get to the psychology of it. But no, God. actually, we have a psychologist on the phone right now who's going <laughs> to explain oh. it to us. Wow, uh, <laughs> I really did not sell that joke. <laughs> I was like, oh wow. Um, but no, exactly. There's, there's just definitely, you know, people go to these experiences not, not, not to just get the gut punch constantly. And films kind of went that way for a long time. Mm. But they didn't say anything. No. Like they Saw didn't. Six tries to talk about being a health like an examination of the healthcare system, but it's fucking oh Saw Six. What's you hostile know? to an examination of? Oh god. An examination of how we were wrong about Eli Roth being <laughs> anywhere near a decent filmmaker. We're getting emails about that one, I'm <laughs> sure. Off, I'm sure. Probably from Eli Roth. He's, I'm sure he listens to these podcasts. So that that's a big reason that your next kind of like popped up because I, I feel like after that and especially the, this kind of like new pack of um, what they called the gore pack or whatever the the, the splat pack, the splat pack. Um, yeah. You know, after you got that mid two thousands uh, 
the Takeshi Miyakis, the um, Alexander Aja. It's kind of like doing this really horrific mm. horror. It's nice to have a turn with Adam Wingard, um, Ty West of, of like bringing West. yeah of bringing violence back to like. Con- se- yeah, se- the separation of of this isn't real life. It's it's a joke. It's it's you're in a funhouse. Compare that, and that's why I kind of group these two movies together. It's Blue Ruin, and Blue Ruin, in a lot of ways, has that same slapstick, but the violence is very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is, in particular, a scene where where this guy, um, to, to give a general premise to Blue Ruin, if you've never seen it, uh, what happens is, um, Miss Man's mother has an affair with a with a wealthy father, um, the wealthy of somebody else's wealthy father. That that person's son goes and murders the the mother and father mm-hmm. um he goes to prison once he gets released from prison the son of the the murdered mother and father kills this guy and then basically it just becomes a hatfield mccoy situation mm. and it's it's told a lot for laughs um in some ways but the violence is not and i thought that was interesting uh and this is something that jeremy solner does is kind of like brings he he separates the moments of comedy um, from the modes of violence, and there's there's a particular scene where where somebody's shot in the head, and typically you just get like, you know the typical little small hole in the sure. head, and instead this like streaks across the skull, um, streaks across the chin, sorry, and I think that's interesting is is that that I think you're seeing a lot in in violence in films the separation between you know getting back to like the the slasher film route of violence being cathartic versus this, and and Solner does this a lot later. Um, and some other directors will mention later on the podcast in future episodes kind of do the opposite and say like, no, when you actually look at this in a realistic connotation, it's, it's horrific. Mm-hmm. Um, Steven Spielberg, I mean, Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg does that extremely well, going back to Saving Private Ryan. And I think there's, there's a lot to be done in the examination of violence. And I think these two films, uh, and the violence in films, because I think we got to a point where we're starting to be too happy with it and focusing too much in, in just how much torture and pain people are going through. Right. And I, I think these two films kind of signaled the separation from that. Going back, no, we need to look, look at violence. Either there's something like a fun house that's not happening to people. That's not horrifying or it is horrifying. It's terrible. You know, don't take pleasure in real pain. Well, and, I, and I think that, and um, I think that's kind of what's going on with hereditary now is that I still haven't seen that one, which is fine. Um, I'm just going to make the comment that it's, the violence is contextualized to the point where even when it gets really out of control, it never has that, um, the feeling you get when you watch a Saw movie or a hostile movie mm-hmm. where there's like, well, she's just doing that because I want to see that happen. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? It has, it has a larger, has a larger effect, which makes it simultaneously seem real despite the, whatever else might be going on in the scene. And also more horrifying because it has actual results and ramifications for the rest of the movie. No, so definitely. it's not just simply like, "Hey, watch how I cut this guy's dick off." It's like, hey. "Oh, that's my favorite, my favorite film. Watch how I cut this guy's dick off." <laughs> yeah, it's. I thought that, that was no, that was a Nickelode- Neil, that was Neil a Nickelodeon show, right? Movie. It was yeah, after yeah, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so so yeah, so basically. Those two, those two movies, are, I would suggest for anybody to watch. Uh, I think they're they're entertaining films in their own right. Everyone should watch all of these movies. Yeah, maybe we'll see. The next movie on my list, I, I would not necessarily suggest, but we'll get to that in a moment. Well, what's your What's your next movie? Speaking of violence, my next movie is Meet Joe Black, Ooh. directed by Who Gives a Shit, written by I don't know. This is a movie I believe 
a lot of people saw opening weekend because it had a trailer for Star Wars The Phantom Menace attached to it. Is that true? It made a huge opening weekend, and there was reports of just massive walkouts after. Well, it still had a young Brad Pitt. It had Anthony Hopkins. Brad Pitt plays Death. A movie, a movie I've only seen the opening scene of because I've heard of the hilarity of it. So another movie I have. It's the whole movie's hilarious. There's it's long, right? It's, it's very long. It's very quiet, which is going to be a running theme for my movies on my list um, is um, Silence and Space. Directed by Martin Brest. That's not even a name I'm familiar with. And it's got... Oh, Beverly Hills Cop and Sentinel of a Woman. And it's got... And Geely. And it's got five writers attached oh, to it also. I mean, Good the thing God. that's the two things that are interesting about it is the silence. I think the performances are generally pretty good. I think Anthony Hopkins gives a fairly good performance as, um, you know, an old, an aging billionaire media mogul who is knows he's going to die and is hanging out with death for however long he hangs out with, and hmm. death, you know, falls in love with his daughter and whatever. Um, the two things that I think are really interesting is that. The performances are very good. They sell all the, you know, Jeffrey Tambor, Marsha Gay Harden, you know, Brad Pitt, um, Claire Foriani. Um, They really sell this fairly ridiculous. I think it's Death Takes a Holiday. It's a remake of Death Takes a Holiday. It is, is exactly. Um, The other thing is that, and we'll talk about this when we get to the list, um, is the cinematography in it. It's Emmanuel Luzbecki. And it's just fantastic. He shoots New York like someone who has never seen New York before, and every aspect of it is just blowing his mind. This has to be, looking at just looking at what he's done, this has to be one of the earliest significant works he did, too, with Becky. Like, he did Little Princess and Birdcage of any significance before that. Mm-hmm. So I'd agree, like, and this is, there's uh, definitely movies on later on the list, both of our lists, that will talk about his cinematography. Right, and this is a movie that kind, um, kind of signals what his style would be, I think. For you know, going forward, um, you see a lot of, you know, it doesn't look a lot like um, a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but there's stuff happening in here that looks a lot like Knight of Cups, really? or that looks a lot like Tree of Life, where you just have these sweeping expanse shots, um, you know, where the camera kind of drifts a little bit. Um, it's not just panning across, you know, a horizon. It's it's dipping. Um, it matches, I think what we would assume death's perspective would be, even though we would have to assume that death has seen New York before. You know, I'm assuming lots of people in New York have died. Um, But the fact that this... I've heard rumors. The fact that this character seems to be experiencing new things and the camera seems to be experiencing it with him, I think is a nice, um, you know... So this is basically... I don't know what it is. So this is basically a movie where you you would say that, that... If Luz Becky didn't shoot it, it probably wouldn't have made an impact on you at all. No, because it probably would have been fairly static. So you have a movie that takes place most of the time in apartments and boardrooms and, you know, in a diner and a couple of scenes in, like, big rooms, but rooms nevertheless. And he makes it seem expansive, which is something that I think he's really good at, generally. Um, And then there's a Thomas Newman soundtrack, and he was pretty much on fire fire for, you know, that whole era there with American Beauty and stuff like that so um have you seen so I I see like I have very little knowledge of this film have you seen both versions of it the 181 original cut and the 129 minute Alan Smithy cut no I've only seen the original cut so apparently Martin Brest 
derided the Martin Dry Nine Minute Cut. I somehow speculate that might actually be better. I don't know. I think one of the things that I like about this movie, I mean, maybe it will be, I don't know. I think one of the things that I like about this movie is the space. Really? Um, you know, it breathes a lot. There's not a lot going on in this movie. I mean, this, so it's like a lot of like lingering establishment shots. Yeah. Kind of like you get in Brokeback Mountain or... And even um, between... Even between people, like, you know, so the poster I'm looking at right now has Brad Pitt and Claire Ferrani's faces right next to each other. Um, this would happen in the movie for a lot more beats than would happen in a, nor- in a normal mm-hmm. movie. Um, and I think that's to the movie's benefit. It doesn't try to move the plot along too fast because the plot's fairly well established in the beginning of the movie. You know, here's death. I'm going to take you. But I'm going to hang out for a little bit first and just see what is. Yeah, it's definitely... And then it just does that for two hours. I mean, it's based on a movie that was 80, 90 minutes long, Death Takes a Holidays. Sure. Like, there's it's definitely not a plot that gives itself to 181 minutes, I would, I would assume. But Martin Brest fucking did it. <laughs> did Martin Brest do it? And his team of writers. Uh, including such names as Kevin Wade and Bo Goldman. Whoa. And, and two other writers who don't even have Wikipedia links. That is a murderer's row. <laughs> All right, so what's your what's your last one? So my last movie um, is Existence by hmm. written and directed David Cronenberg, nineteen ninety nine. This is this is actually, and I saved this one for last because this is actually the one I think I have the most to say about. It's it's a bad, bad movie. Yeah. Okay. It's it's bad, <laughs> and I can't. It, it's. It's a failing of David Cronenberg in a lot of ways. It, it kind of, um, it got well reviewed. It, it got critically decent reviews, um, but there's a lot of wandering in the movie. There's a lot of. Well, he liked to do that wandering yeah. stuff after, like the his, uh, history of violence. Well, this is before history of violence. Oh, is, is it? This is ninety nine. So oh, okay, is, so it is before history of violence. I'm yeah, sorry. this is this is kind of like before he got back on track. I don't know why I thought you said two thousand. Yeah, before he got back on track with history of violence and um, Eastern Promises. Mm-hmm. But to me, the thing that strikes most about this movie is it, it definitely uh, tells a lot. You know, me and Tom are, bo- are both people that that have a lot of opinions about certain types of media. Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're coming from the standpoint of a musician. Yep. Um, you know, you have a lot of opinions about music. It's not something that really strikes to me at all. Mm-hmm. I I'm not a music person. I only appreciate music in the sense that it adds to a visual media. However, Existence kind of deals with like the video game world. Um, I wouldn't call myself a huge video gamer, but mm-hmm. I, I definitely appreciate the media, and I think this is one of those few films that that captures that. Hmm. Um, it's a fun ride too. It's a, it's a fun, messy ride, and I usually dislike movies that don't have anything to say. Uh-huh. Existence doesn't have a lot to say. Um, its performances are middling. Uh, you know who's you, in it? I don't. Got, I don't, I don't Jeff, think I saw it. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Jude Law are in it. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't see it, but I remember it. Uh, yeah, and, when it came and, out. And it's definitely it, it's a movie that hits all of its marks wrong. But it's <laughs> I, I saw it during a period. As he's ten, I mean, he's done he that do. before no, exactly. and since. So. Um, and I was going on a huge David Cronenberg Ricks uh, kick at during the time. Uh, this is this is early in college, so I was watching The Fly. Mm-hmm. Um, I had just seen History of Violence in two thousand five. I saw that in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of like set off my obsession with David Cronenberg's so Dead Ringers, Scanners, all movies I, yep. I adore in many ways, and um, would have spots on my list. Uh, a lot of these, mo- a lot of those movies don't. Some of them do. Um, but Existence has no reason to be anywhere on my list. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's definitely a film. It features some of that that body horror they get with the Videodrome mm-hmm. and Naked Lunch. 
um, it, it hits his hallmarks, it hits his points, hits his marks, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't hit it right. However, it's a movie I keep coming back to. Huh. And it's kind of one of those those curiosities I find. And I don't know if it's because I do have an appreciation of video game media and that it is a decent conversation on video games and like the state of virtual reality as an art form. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just have it here because it is a movie that, that made an impact on me in the sense that I realized that I can find a movie I really think is bad. Ultimately bad. It doesn't have, it's not well written. It's too short. Yeah. It, it, it jumps over plot points using either deus ex machinas or, or huge jumps in logic to not say anything but I keep coming back to it. Sure, but I think I could say the same thing about bringing up The Dead and Meet Joe Black. I'm not sure how well either of those movies work, except on, like, very specific artistic levels. Um, and there's, but there's, I keep wanting... I, I actually think about them a lot. And there's nothing, Way more than I would think I, I would. Besides some of the makeup effects, there's nothing of artistic merit to me. In <laughs> it's, there, there's there's for, for somebody who has proven himself in David Cronenberg to be... You know, one of the top director, maybe the top director in body horror. He's doing a film that kind of revels in body horror. The main plot point is people plugging themselves into this virtuality through their flesh. Right. And, you know, obviously, this is David Cronenberg. There's going to be some sort of fleshal insertion. Sure. Yeah, this guy loves... He loves anything, fleshal insertion. Anything being a dick is, is David Cronenberg. <laughs> David Cronenberg's like first... He might as well be called Richard Cronenberg because this guy loves cocks. And... He has that, and it's not like he's necessarily doing it out of. It didn't feel like he's doing it out of obligation. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like he's doing the body. He's doing the body hard because he wants to do it, and he feels it as an artistic merit. But it didn't to me. Yeah, there was. It was. It was somebody who's exceptional as craft at filmmaking, and even as a writer, I think mm-hmm. David Cronenberg is a, a yeah, solid yeah, yeah. Writer. I agree with you. Um, trying to say something and believing he says something, but not saying anything at all. Mm. And it's intriguing to me to to find movies that are that's a bad a movie. I will I will definitively say is a bad movie. A movie I couldn't really recommend to anybody, but that I keep coming back to and saying there's something there. Right, and, and I'm not sure what it and is. And I don't have the like the names of the movies on the tip of my tongue, but I feel like there's a lot of movies that are kind of like this, where um, a director or a writer thinks that the movie as a whole is a metaphor for something. But if the metaphor misses, and the metaphor is not obvious, and it's too deeply buried into the general, like the movie as a whole, then it just doesn't work. And I, I don't think there's there's nothing buried in existence. It's it's very much everything in its surface level to me. Okay. Um, like you understand the plot points he's trying to make, but I don't know why he was trying to make these points. There, there's there is nothing to say. Yeah. All right. So that's the last movie on my list, but do you have a... I got one more, more, and we'll go quick, because um, it's kind of the opposite. Um, that's that's a good... Because I, I just shit-talked David Cronenberg for a good five well, minutes. Which, uh, fans of David Cronenberg <laughs> and David Cronenberg himself, we both have David Cronenberg movies on the rest of our list, so just calm the fuck down. Um, or don't. My America, movie, we love death threats. My movie is a movie that's generally regarded to be uh, a classic and very well-made. Um, I just can't get into it regardless of how many times I watched this impossibly long movie and that is Michael Cimino's Deer Hunter wow. and it is I want it to be on my list very badly I've seen it a bunch of times I have visceral memories of buying 
the double VHS tape. Um, I don't remember. I had to have been a teenager. Oh, okay. So it's something um, like not five-year-old Tom. No, 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 no. This is, I think, Mark Maron always tells us. No, Mark, Mark Maron always tells the story on WTF about how his grandparents took him to see Deliverance when he was nine. Um, or seven or something like that. No, it wasn't anything like that. But I, as I started to get into film, this is one of the ones that people pointed to. And, you know, the uh, Russian roulette scenes, a uh, scene that gets shown a lot in terms of best scenes and whatever. Well, exactly. um, there's just something weird about it. There's something strange about it. I don't know if it's the Pennsylvanianess of it. Um, I don't know if it's De Niro's acting. Um, I don't know if it's Christopher Walken's acting. I don't know if it's, which I think is very good, but he's hitting a lot of odd notes. Um, a young I, Christopher Walken. Um, I don't know if it's watching it after knowing who Meryl Streep is and then seeing this fairly subdued, anonymous Meryl Streep in this movie and kind of expecting her to do more things and her not doing not doing very much. Well, see, I, I would agree with you there. Deer Hunter, to me, is is an odd movie in that I, I kind of feel the same way. Um maybe a little more removed from it. I don't feel anything. I think it's well acted. Hmm. I don't think it's well written and I don't think it's well directed. And that's why I'm always surprised when, you know, Heaven's Gate pops up as like one of the biggest failures because everyone's expecting so much from this director, uh, from Camino. And I'm not like, like looking at it through the scope of, of history, you know, not I, when I saw Deer Hunter, I didn't know about Heaven's Gate. Yeah, me neither. I also wasn't of the time where, you know, the, this film when this film was released, it definitely made an impression. But through that lens of history, whether it be because of Meryl Streep, you know, now being a known actress, or or these, you know, Robert De Niro's coming a couple years off of Taxi Driver, Christopher Walken still kind of establishing himself, having known these actors and what they're capable of, um, it almost makes me wonder if it's just people. It was it was just you know a strike of luck for Camino, um, and that he's able to get these performances from these people. And yeah. people kind of credited him for that, not realizing that, no, it's just he has some of the best actors of his generation. Yeah. And I wonder, too, if he benefited from everything that happened after that, you know, with De Niro kind of solidifying himself as one of our great film actors in Raging Bull um, and, you know, Meryl Streep going on to have the career that she had and, um, you know, then the second Godfather movie kind of, you know, solidifying all of those things well, exactly. together um, did... I don't know. We weren't alive in 1978, so I... And John, you know. as Kazeel, as too, because John Kazeel... Yeah, is, sure. It's you know, one of his five famous, movies. The famous actor who all five of his films were Best Picture nominees and... Sure. Himself, or best, best Picture nominees, yeah. at least. Not not winners, right? Like No, no. Dog Day didn't win. Yeah. Three of them were winners. Yeah. Um, I believe three of them were winners. I don't know. We he, was in, he was in the first Godfather, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so three sure. of them were winners. Um, and... You know, it's just, I think he might have got lucky. Yeah, I don't, it's one of those things I don't know. Um, and I think people talk about it a lot, or I've had, I've heard people talk about it on podcasts and, in, you know, in books, uh, the greatness of Deer Hunter. And I wonder if we're just remembering um, uh, uh, culturally exactly a, a, a movie that we're all kind of remembering it collectively. We're trying to remember it collectively the same. Because this is. And it's, it's, if you actually watch the movie, it's very. It's very distancing. It's not easy to get into. It's not easy to love. It's not you. It's I appreciate it's, it's it. Really meandering, yeah. and and Camino is is a meandering director. I think Heaven's Gate is known to be a film that is renowned, infamous for its meandering. That it doesn't have a lot to say. 
in but production it it, and on the screen. It says a lot of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is this is Meryl Streep's first nomination. You mm-hmm. know, she would go on to have twenty more nominations after this. This is you know, when this came out, she'd been known as a stage actress, a, a, a television actress, mm-hmm. but she wasn't really established as a film actress. And you have De Niro, you have Walken, you have Kazil. It's is, it's interesting, but yeah. I don't know if it's in, it's certainly not interesting enough to be on my movie. And I'm not sure if it's interesting enough to um, have attained the the cultural spot that it's so, that it's so does enjoyed. It the, does it have the spot and you're just missed because you feel like it should be on your list? Absolutely. It not was... because it actually. <clears throat> so not because it it said something to you and that like it had some sort of impact. Just ne- just because it's just stuck in my head. But yeah. like um, so when I was writing my list, literally when I was writing my list and I was ranking them. Um, it was always kind of like the last movie on the list for a long time, and then it just got pushed out completely oh, by other things. And I, I think that's a, a good point to bring up for the remainder of this podcast. You know, as we go through the series, is there's going to be films that are number one on lists that that don't show up on our lists. Nope. Uh, I can say this right now: Citizen Kane does not have a spot on my list. Yeah, it's on my list, but yeah, that's, but it's but just it's, it's low on my list. It's not number one. It's in the middle of my list. And. And you know, that kind of speaks to the fact that like we're talking about films that had an impact on us. Like I saw Citizen Kane after years of hearing of how much it did for film, yep. uh, and it didn't do anything for me. And this is we just had this conversation with Altman. There's yeah. no there's no Altman on our lists. It's he's just not he's just not there. And you, and you'd want to remove that bias and say that you know maybe you know I I'm obviously expected too much of it. But there's other movies on my list that pop up that were considered hallmarks of cinema. I knew their hallmarks of cinema going into the film. I saw it, and I was like, no, that, that actually is doing something. That does something to me. <clears throat> that might be a hallmark of... And a lot of these things, you know, these hallmarks of cinema that aren't on our list, they can still be hallmarks of cinema. Oh, they no, They just exactly. didn't do anything for you. They didn't do anything for me. No, we're, we're never going to say that... You know, we have no place to say that Deer Hunter is a bad movie. We have no, I don't no think it's a bad movie at all. I have no place to say that Citizen Kane's a bad movie. I'd never say that. I know it's, I know it's one of the best-crafted films in 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 the sure. media but for me it it didn't make an impact nope and i think i think that's a, that's a good spot for deer hunter is to say yeah. like it's a movie that should be there and i i really didn't do that you know with my list but saying that should be there but it just it just doesn't do anything and it doesn't do anything for me either it yeah. doesn't show up on my list either all right well let's uh let's take a break and then we'll come back and talk about movie number 100 100 <laughs> Welcome back. And now it's time to actually get this shit started. We're talking about our 100 top movies, and we're going to start with Woo! number 100. <laughs> uh, my number 100, Mario's number 100, will be discussed shortly. But first, we only had one of those stouts on us. Yeah. So we're having to switch direction here a bit yep. over to a good old double IPA, also from Tilted Barn. This is the other one. I gotta not it, just not just not just the other beer. It is the other beer, but it is also called the other, the other one. This is the third highest ranked according to Beer Advocate and Untapped, and apparently those guys are smart. The third highest ranked hmm. beer in all of Rhode Island. Interesting. Uh, IPA. No beer. Beer overall. Really? Yeah. Those guys are smart. All right. Let's uh, let's imbibe. Once again, just another solid double IPA. It's finishes. It finishes, no, it finishes tasty, nice. and it has a. I think the mouthfeel on this one is is what really captures it. It mm. doesn't like 
Last week with the Relic, it, it coats, and it, yeah. it shouldn't coat. This one does not. It's it's nice and crisp. It finishes nice. It has that nice finish to it. It has a good body. Yep. Um, Taste-wise, it's it's good. It's a good double. I mean, it's not too sweet. A lot of double IPAs have this. They they cover up the out the booziness, and this isn't really too boozy. This is only a seven point nine, which, which is not is, bad for a double. Which is boozy, but not bad for a double. But it doesn't need to cover it up with that sweetness to cover up the alcohol. It just kind of like sets, and it, it's it's the body of it is. You're right, uh, and I kind balanced. of I think I expected. I don't know why I think I expected some some more sweetness, and it is a very balanced, hoppy, light sweetness. Um, it tastes good. Um, that's the rain. Yeah. In case anyone, in case this comes through, we actually have a drum circle about fifty feet away. It is New Haven. Us on to it like, is New Haven. Mario Tom. Mario Tom. <laughs> but no, this this is a a great beer, um, and I like the cans of these. Oh, they're these gorgeous, tilted barns. Gorgeous cans. We'll put we'll put the cans on. Put the artwork on on the website, maybe. Yeah, so that's. I mean, we can talk about this on air and then cut it out. But I wanted to put a list of the beers we drank on the website as well. Yeah, yeah like along good. with the list. Like we should probably put like artwork, like the can art. Yeah, 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 yeah. We should or, keep this. Or at least we should fucking keep this in. By the way, people really love procedural discussions. Yeah, they love they love the logistics of how the podcasts run. But no, this once again, this is from Tilted Farm or Tilted Barn. Which is a farm. It's a farm brewery. So I think you do get the freshness. You know, the fact that this is made on site, it's brought on site. The hops are probably. And you bought it on site? Oh, bought it on site. I drove the 90 miles to Exeter, Rhode Island. Not for the podcast, like I said. (laughs) Not yet, anyway. But, anyways. Wink, wink. Enough of a. Tilted barn. It's going to be a loud pop there, I'm sure, with my noise. Um, We're here for the uh, 100th film. And so my number 100 is Leon the Professional, the 1994 Luc Besson movie, written and directed by him, starring Jean Reno, Natalie Portman in her feature debut, and uh, Gary Oldman, overacting. Doing Gary Oldman things. Yeah, well, not necessarily. I don't know. I, I think Gary Oldman, later on, especially like in Bram Stoker's Dracula, does kind of like that caricature, but kind of pulls it back. I well, think this yeah. is... That's no, not, not later on. I think this is this is... Bram Stoker's Dracula is before this, I think. Bram Stoker's Dracula is 92. Two, yeah. Um, but no, he's, he's really overacting here. And yeah. I'll, I'll get into the, his performance yeah, soon enough. But um, for anybody who hasn't seen Leon the Professional, it's basically the story of a man-child hitman almost, a pretty underdeveloped hitman in, in some ways. Yeah. Um, looking at the wonders of the world, who he lives next door to a young girl with a very dysfunctional family in the sense that mm-hmm. they are running drugs and stealing drugs from corrupt DEA agents. Um, everyone winds up dead in her family. He takes her in. And, uh, you know, things happen from there. Well, and she wants to learn how to be a hitman. No, exactly. And she wants to learn how to become a hitman. Um, you know, because of the death of one of her family members. Yeah. Um, but from from a plot standpoint, it's a very typical action movie. Um that you, especially that you got in the early '90s, but I think yeah, it's, the reason it shows shows up on my list is is the way it, it crafts that story. Mm-hmm. Um, Luke Besson, I, I think, has a lot of the hallmarks of what could have been a great director. Um, unfortunately, yeah. I think he he ended up missing the mark later on in his career. Uh, Valerian, um, Lucy are messes, just absolute travesties. Yeah, and you can um, see almost aspects of some of that stuff coming. Yeah, this, I mean, and there's, this there's, movie's good, but it's there's weird. Like he makes odd choices. There, there's some really odd choices. There's a couple really well done choices, sure. which, which show up on my list. Um, and also, he's known for the Fifth Element, which I think is a movie that's fine. 
it's it's I like the yeah, I like the fifth it's element. Good. It's interesting. It's good, but especially when you know if you grew up with Star Wars as like your one sci-fi movie and Star no, Wars, I'm not a Star Wars guy. These, but even all these traditional sci-fi movies, Fifth Element stands out as something different. It, it does a, a lot good job of world building, and this is something I'd have to say um, is a credit to Leon is is that it's definitely in not necessarily your own world. Um, a lot of these characters act against type from what you'd expect mm-hmm. um there there's a lot of fantasy elements to it mm-hmm. and not not necessarily strong fantasy elements in the sense of like it's a fantastical situation but these are not people who act normal um how they would normally act um so the reason this shows up on my list in particular is because when i was a young when i was young when i was 10 and 11 when i saw this really yeah Oh, my did you want to be a hitman? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah I did. <laughs> no, there, there, there definitely should be a little bit of backstory here. My, my mother was very much not the type of person who cared about what I saw as a kid. Mm-hmm. She just there's some things she didn't want me to see, but I saw. She said I was ready to see Halloween at the age of six. Nothing so, happens in Halloween. No, it's not that bad. But no. you know, definitely not a movie that people should be seeing. That most parents, most parents are like, six, this yeah. is you're ready for this. Or I think I saw Child's Play at the age of eight. So. You know, I saw Die Hard as, as a very small child. My parents definitely did well, not a, feel they were like they they definitely said film story. is film is is fake. It's a medium. Mm-hmm. And Leon to me strikes interesting in that it is a typical action movie that has all hallmarks of a really exceptional drama. Yes, that's um, interesting. I think one of the biggest things, the first thing really to talk about, is just Natalie Portman in that movie is. I th- I would to this day still say it's probably her best performance for me. I I think I agree with you. Yeah. I liked um, I liked the Jackie Onassis movie. I thought she was. I never got around pretty to good Jackie. In it. Um, I thought I it mean, was. I saw I saw Black Swan, which she, I she's you. I know you don't. I like the one her. scene in Black Swan, but I think she's better in. Um, I think she's better in Jackie. Mm. Um, Jackie's not a well directed movie, but I think she's very good in it. But I think you're right. I don't believe her all the time as a, no, and in her characters, and I and she's, 100% yeah. bought into this. And she's 12 or 13 when right. she when she filmed this. Um, Jean Reno's good. Jean Reno's never been a great actor, but he's, he's good in it. Um, but I this is something truly that made me, you know, kind of get on that 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 hype train that was Natalie Portman. Mm. Um, there, there's there's the two scenes in particular, and you know you typically don't get child performances at this level. Um, and this is one of the things I'd want to say that strikes as a hallmark for Luke Besson as a great director mm-hmm. in this one film, mm-hmm. showing you that a, a director who's who's been known as an auteur really isn't necessarily, but they had strikes that made that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, after her family's been killed, she walks by, sees the hitman yep. there, and it's just a point of view shot of her knocking on the door slowly losing it but holding it together and for for a child actor to be doing this holding it together is, is remarkable yep um and, and the fact the way that shot scene shot when the she's about ready to be killed herself and the door finally opens it doesn't cut to you know him opening the door it's just that that light and then just everything is sold in her reaction sure it's not and that's not overacting there's there's no like oh thank god you know sort of thing but it's just like this a slight break. It's interesting that you met because I just, I literally just watched it, you know, again, two days ago. Um, and that stood out to me too, is that she didn't at any point oversell that scene. It was a very 
realistically emotional mm -hmm. performance from her at that moment. No, exactly. Um, and it's immediately followed by that scene where, um, you know, Jean Renault is, is talking to her about the death of her family, and she just kind of goes through the fact that her father, her sister, mm -hmm. and her stepmother died, and she doesn't really care. Um, I, you kind of get the sense that she she does like it's still it's still traumatic. But then when she loses it about her, her brother, brother yep. four year old brother, that's that is slightly overacting. Obviously, it's it's still kind of a slightly unnatural performance, but it's appropriate. Well, and here and I, it's it's very appropriate. And I'll comment on something that I found interesting too is that um, that makes Luke Besson at least an interesting director is that he dumped all the exposition in the movie into really two scenes, like that first scene that you just described where you kind of get the family dynamic after all the family's dead, which kind of, you know, you see the family in action, but then she kind of describes how everything works. Um, and so in your head, you don't have to feel, you don't have to worry about any of those, the family members anymore. You can kind of focus besides, on besides the brother, besides the brother, but he's, which he's he goes just back a plot, to. He's a plot catalyst. Sure. But they don't spend a lot of time um, trying to, you know, I think a lesser movie would spend a lot of time going, you know, her revealing pieces of that information. No, it's, it's scene by scene. Right it's on her all sleeve. right there. It's all on her sleeve. And then after that, you just, it's all connection. You just get all, and they don't even, they don't even bother to break in all that often with, um, you know, Stanfield, uh, you know, stuff with like any kind of DEA stuff. They just kind of let Jean Reno, um, Leon and Matilda just kind of go on their way and do exactly. what they're going to do, which I, I, which I thought was, I kept waiting because a modern movie would break in and say, oh, what's this guy doing? What's this guy doing? What's this guy doing? But you don't. And even the same thing with Danny Aiello. You only get him when you need him. And, you don't get him at, at any other time in the movie. And I think a big point of this podcast will be, you know, these are films that made an impact us in the moment. Mm -hmm. And there, there is a reason why it made an impact on me in the moment. And then, you know, now we're, we're every episode we're going to be revisiting the film. We're watching the film before we record the episode within yep. the week before so that we can kind of say how now it, it impacts us. Fucking finally, the rain is done too. So, hey, that dead noise is gone. <laughs> um, and so when I first saw this, you know, what struck me initially was the performances. But what I think was the big thing, as I said, I saw this when I was, when I was 10. So I saw this in 96 or 97, mm -hmm. um, was the exploration of an anti-hero has, has a hero. Hmm. Um, and I, I didn't understand the concepts as a child. I mean... You know, I was I was surrounded. My dad was a big John Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal fan, so my introduction to action outside of something like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, which are exceptionally well done mm -hmm. action movies that we'll be talking about, um, was these fucking garbage movies that are fun, but you know, but hard to kill. Yeah. Mark for death. Time cop. Uh, time, no, time cops. Time cops actually actually a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't talk about that in the A block and Time Cop. <laughs> Time really, Cop was close. I, I really love Ron Silver in that goddamn movie. <laughs> but um, these are movies that are very two-dimensional, black and white, good and bad. Mm -hmm. Obi-Wan was the first film I had the exposure to that's an action movie that hits a lot of those hallmarks, but tells the story of a really bad, ultimately a bad man. Mm -hmm. like, like, Leon isn't a good person. And I think Luke Besson kind of explores that in that opening. That opening's really well done in the sense that it's told like a slasher movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of um, the first sense that I got that this is going to be a very violent movie mm -hmm. because it doesn't have to be a very violent movie. No, no. But that, it's an exceptionally violent movie. And that opening scene is concerning in a lot of ways because 
the introduction we get from Tony is that you know this is the mark that that Leon is going to have that that opening scene that that mm-hmm. that overweight man. That's that's his character name, the overweight man for me. I mean, I don't know actually. He has a character name, but <laughs> that doesn't matter. But um, Leon Leon is shown to be like a Michael Myers type character, just going around murdering people who are just being bodyguards for somebody we know is is not a good person. I mean, you get that. He has associations with the mob. Yeah. These people aren't necessarily shown to be evil. Like, this guy's having, you know, hooking up with his, his mistress or whatever. He's not doing anything grossly awful. Well, and I think... And Leon's going around just murdering these people without regard. Like, he just... This one guy's looking at, at video monitor footages, and he just goes outside and yeah. gets hung. Well, I think that's... <laughs> I think it's interesting hanged, in hanged, the sense hanged that hanged would be the correct grammatical hangeth. Thing I think yeah. hangeded. Oh, the King James version or, or new, yeah, yeah, King the King James American. version of our of okay. our podcast. Okay, um, I think an interesting aspect. I mean, they they set that up in the beginning beginning of that scene um, with Tony, and the sense that this guy is just kind of encroaching on their turf, on someone's turf. Yeah, he's not, and then he doesn't even kill anybody. the guy that's the real target. He kills everybody else but this guy. And he lets the guy live so he can tell whoever, you know, oh, don't get off my turf. Yeah, it's it's not you, – you don't necessarily get the sense that this person's awful. This person's not like running a human trafficking ring for all we know. He's, he's just a mark. And, yeah. and I think that that was interesting to me. As a kid, when I first saw this, I saw the opening scene. I'm like, this guy's a fucking asshole. Yeah. Like, why is this – you know, and as you see the movie, you, you expect him to be the villain. It, you having seen all the action films around it, you'd expect then your John Claude Van Damme, Mary Steven Seagal to pop in and be like, "This is you know, John Renault's going to be the main villain, and you know we're going to have a very you know born corn fed, even though they're almost all the time not American mm-hmm. uh, hero there who's who's going to take him on, and that's not what happens here. No. And I think there was an interesting exploration. Um, you don't get a lot of action movies during that time. You get a lot of the everyman's or kind of like the the embodied superheroes being being the hero. But in this case, it, it's a it's a a pretty bad person who's who's your hero. That the fact that he, he takes a lot of time to open the door for a little girl. Yeah. And then three minutes later, wakes up in the middle of the night, grabs a silenced pistol, and then holds it to her head, and then just barely goes, "I'm not going to murder her." Which is and it's it's interesting because uh, you know throughout the course of the movie, I think you kind of are waiting for him to get the sense that he maybe shouldn't be killing people, you but you exactly. never get that sense. No, he's still the same guy, but he's more open to living life in a, a better way than he had been previously living it, where it was just him and his plant and his milk. Um, you know, was- cleaning his guns and doing sit-ups and sleeping. You know, sitting up in a chair. And that's and he and, wants and he wants more than that, but he also doesn't. But he still does, doesn't mind killing people. Does he want more than that though? There was there was an interesting article I read because I'm the fucking nerd who's researching these. Episodes no, I, read, I also I read articles though. But um, somebody made I, I don't have the name of the person who wrote the article who who mentioned that this is kind of like a good exploration of like like a Schopenhauer mm-hmm. philosophy. Yeah. In the sense, you know that that man's ultimately an automaton. That all you know, like Schopenhauer said, you know, like do any actions uh, or motivations actually occur um you know that we could describe as moral it, it, and, and yeah. everything leon does is 
just in the beginning is just occurring out of no sense of duty. It's just occurring because that's what he does. He buys yep. two K he buys, you know, two liters of milk because he does that. Mm-hmm. He he goes to see a movie with that and I think I think going to see those those movies it kind of brings up a good point because that's the one time you get like a slight characterization of characterization that that he is not just an automaton because the opening is just somebody methodically murdering people. He then goes and waters his plant. That's his only friend. Mm-hmm. He goes and buys the milk. He goes and has the conversation with Tilda because that's what he does. He just mm-hmm. lives life step by step. And as the film progresses, you know, as he faces a, a true villain in, in Stanfield. Um, he doesn't change his actions, but the uh, catalyst to create the, you know, for those actions changes. It goes mm. from following orders. It goes from just this is what he does because he does it, to being he's do he's the same person in the end. He has no arc, no change. He's still murdering people, but he changes because he has an altruistic goal. Yeah, and and, and so and so yeah, maybe you know, following that kind of like Schopenhauer route of of do we do actions because they're moral. Maybe not. Maybe maybe we don't have that that sense of free will, um, but we still do those actions. But the reason why we're doing those actions changes, and that's that's something right. like I think like when I saw this as a young younger, um, didn't you know like that that kind of depth of analysis didn't strike to me. But when I revisited it this past week, I, I see the same plot points being hit, the same the same moments being hit, and the same kind of like themes being mm-hmm. struck. But now I kind of see it in this point of he is an antihero. He is a bad guy. And he, he's a bad guy in the beginning because he's killing people because it's it's what he does. But in the end, he's he's sacrificing himself for a greater purpose, and he's still killing people for a greater purpose, not necessarily the right way, but he's trying to become a good person. Right. Well, I mean, I think the the idea of morals is interesting because I was I'll always you know for the listeners, um, I'm a big Roger Ebert guy. I think one of the things that I think bothers me about reading about this film. Um, and I think it's because in the 90s, the early 90s, I think we were all very sensitive in a, as a culture to the exploitation of children. Um, I remember, I don't remember it, but, you know, I'm reading about, um, I really like the photographer Sally Mann. And she did a, a series of photos of her kids, um, some, a lot of times not wearing clothes, little kids not wearing clothes. And there's a big um, to-do about the professional in those same kind of terms. In there's terms two of, different is versions it moral, of the film. Is it yeah. is it moral to have Natalie Portman's character or Natalie Portman as an actress, you know, walking around in an undershirt in boxer shorts and fetishizing guns and, you know, saying that she loves Jean Reno? Is that moral? And I would say in 2018, that's not a question that really can be asked. And I'm actually not even sure after watching the movie again, after not having seen it in a long time, how it's not moral at all. It seems perfectly amoral. You know, or it's, it doesn't even, the question of morals shouldn't even be brought up in this thing. There's never a sense that they're having an affair, oh, that they're not, sexual, not there's a sexual attraction or anything. There's, there's an absolute discomfort on the part of Leon. Absolutely. Um, so I'm not even, there, I'm not sure you know, where those criticisms are coming from well, of think, this movie. I think the criticisms, I mean, the movie notoriously has two different versions. Um, okay, you know, there's there's the professional, the American cut, which is about two uh, that's hours. That's the one long. I saw. There, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's the, the two and a half hour long cut of Leon, the professional. Okay, uh, the European version, which you know delves more into Matilda trying to become an assassin to you know avenge her brother. Okay, and also kind of like her, her um, 
seduction, trying to seduce Leon mm-hmm. and that being rebuffed. And I think um, maybe this is a hallmark of, of Luke Besson still has a younger screenwriter and I actually think he becomes a better screenwriter later in life. He doesn't become a better director, but he becomes a more accomplished screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's just him show trying to show Leon has somebody trying to do the moral right. Um, Leon's a child, I think, ultimately. Yes. There, there, when he's watching Gene Kelly, he has his mouth agape like a child. And when they're he playing believes, the charades. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he's Same sitting face. there like a child. He believes Tony's holding his money for him um, and is, is going to do right by him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's echoed in the end. Because sure. do, we, do we really have any belief that Tony's really going to give the money to Matilda? He I, gives I, her $100. Yeah. He's, he's not going to give her anything. He's He is legitimately a bad person. And yeah. Leon is a bad person through through being raised as a bad person. Well, I mean, but he does have a moral, some sort of, has fucked he's up, got has code. that moral core. Yeah. It is. He has that moral core. And I, I think Luke Besson presents this, and I, I don't you know want to speculate on um, European versus American sensibilities in film, especially of the time. Um but I think presenting Matilda as somebody who's, you know, raised in a very broken home, um, who thinks that this is what he wants, and then Leon's response to it is is not done to kind of exploit Matilda. It's done to establish that Leon is a decent person at his core. Yeah, he and- he, he sees her as a his daughter and I think my criticism I think the criticism is of the critics because I think that's fairly obvious in the movie oh like exactly she's wearing Just the like same clothes as her sister First Reforms is an environmental movie yeah people just they want to look you know they want to look at the surface of all of this stuff when in reality it's right there if you want to see it and that's exactly why it lines up on my list is the fact that it's it's on the surface a very approachable action film I mean if you do not look at all into the analysis of the film if you don't look into to anything in the film you just look at it as as a hitman reforming himself by saving a child it's fun it's it's a good action movie with problems and but it's funny it's, yeah it's funny yeah it's, it's it's got funny moments and it's got you know great action it's got a memorable villain performance which i think isn't that great personally um but then your, your criticisms then become like well why do they centralize uh, Matilda, why they essentialize a thirteen-year-old Natalie Portman? I don't think they're they are trying to. It is, it is supposed to be seen as sad. They sh- they're showing her sister and her stepmother in the beginning of the movie on purpose. Yeah, and they're putting her they're in both- her sister's obviously old workout clothes on purpose. Is that she's not been given the chance to kind of realize herself as a as her own person. The first the first introduction to Matilda's stepmother is just as an object absolutely I mean, yeah that her father just looks at her as like a fuck item and matilda's sister is just trying to improve her physical being she's, she's so she can end up being that yeah exactly and matilda thinks that's what she has to be as well i mean these are you know leon and matilda are both children in the end matilda's yeah. literally a child leon at a young age was forced out of Sicily forced out of a culture that was already violent mm-hmm. so he, he still hasn't also developed I mean he's, he's mature enough to, to look at Matilda as a daughter but they are both severely underdeveloped people in a world that is just out there to exploit them yeah and it's interesting I mean it's interesting to think about that idea when considering how he dies say he doesn't die say he ends up living um where does he go? 
would he even be capable of of making it in the world not knowing exactly where to get his milk from not exactly. you know not having his plant um can he grow can he grow out of this I, the movie seems to suggest that he can but perhaps the reason he puts himself in such harm's way is that he knows that he can't and and it's because he's and i think like the, that last scene of matilda planting his plant is significant because he is He's past the point of redemption, and and her planting the you know it's it's always going to be that plant can grow to a certain point, but it's always going to be contained within this world. When she plants it, going back to school, it's saying that she could set roots down and actually become an adult, become a fully functioning person. Right, now. but here, check this out. What oh if it's, boy, I'm ready. <laughs> it's a hot take. We're gonna do lots of hot takes. <laughs> um, what if instead of being beyond the path uh, of redemption? He has instilled a moral code in her through his her time with him, even though he was a hitman, even though she spent all that time cleaning guns and, you know, getting the milk and doing whatever else she was going to do. That actually, in reality, instilled a, a, a code in her that she can use to become a regular person. Oh, exactly. And that's that's I think that's seen early on when he tells her, you know. You need to stop cursing as much. You yep. need to stop. He he becomes a parent she never had, even yeah. though he himself isn't necessarily the best source of parenting. He's probably one of the worst sources of parenting. Yeah. He's better than what she had, but yeah, no, it's it is about. And you can argue that she he's better than the school that she had already left, exactly, and that had obviously not taught her anything, but and that he she needed to go live with a hitman to learn how to be a decent human being. And that's why you know, as the film enters its final act, when when. They, the ESU converges on Leon why she's completely essential like they, they take out the sexualization of the character because she's mm-hmm. past that she doesn't need that anymore no she has a personality she's letting herself be a child yep and her first introduction is smoking a cigarette trying you know saying I'm not a child I'm an adult her first thing is just trying to you know say in every way inappropriate vastly inappropriate things to to leon mm-hmm. and by the end she's a kid you know and that's that's a, that's significant she's a hard kid but she's a kid no yeah i mean i think the thing something that i want to point out and so guillermo del toro if you're listening oh man um we're like the wikipedia because i feel like we haven't talked a lot about gary oldman's character in it um i, I want to draw a comparison between gary oldman and his pills to in, in the professional to Michael Shannon and his fucking candy in oh, The Shape of Water. Right. And that, to give Luke Besson credit, whatever he turned out to be as a director, he let him have his fucking pills. He didn't say anything about it. He let Gary Oldman react to them crazily. We assume it's drugs. It's obviously drugs. He doesn't have to have an expositional monologue about why the fuck he's taking these pills before he kills no, somebody. No, his, his first expositional monologue is t- talking about how his victim's a Mozart guy. Right. The Beethoven and I'll com- draw the comparison between when when Michael Shannon kills Michael Stuhlbarg in The Shape of Water and for no reason at all decides to have a couple minute conversation with him about why he eats fucking candy. Yeah. Just... If, Advice for directors that may listen to this podcast and want to make a movie. Just leave it and let your actors sell it that it's part of their personality. It's just part of what they do. Don't write in a bunch of extra, you know, sentences no. that explains what the fuck is going on and here. Even, and even if that didn't work, I mean... I don't know if it did work, but no, I exactly. liked it. No, exactly. I don't... 
like that is my one criticism of this movie is I think um I think Gary Oldman thought he was in under siege. <laughs> because Gary Oldman I I'm I'm not this is one of the few times I'll deride Gary Oldman because I do not think we'll be talking about uh, Darkest Hour on this podcast. So. No. Only in, only in our least favorite he's a, movie He's podcast. a major distraction in this movie. Yeah. Um, he is performing in a bad action movie in a really well done dramatic action movie. And a subtle action movie also. And, and the reason I say Under Siege is because you know, Tommy Lee Jones in Under Siege just overacts his ass off in that movie, but it's great because that movie's because that movie also had Steven Seagal in it. Yeah, and Erica, whatever fuck it was the last name, the, the Baywatch. It's, it's an action movie. It's got Gary Busey. Come on, you should see Under Siege. It's fun. <laughs> but, you know, overact, overacting has its point, and it's great, and, and, it, and it becomes a Hallmark character. And, like, people say Norman Stanfield is one of the greatest villains ever done, and I think uh, that's wrong. Yeah, no thanks. Because Gary Oldman could have had the potential to be a great villain, and I think he's written as a good villain. There's, there's, there's definitely that Mozart Beethoven scene not badly written. It's, I don't think any of it. No, I don't think any of the scenes written. are badly written. He just but the does way he performs things. it is wrong. Because you know you have Natalie Portman, you have Jean Reno, you have even you know, Danny Aiello, who's not the best direct, best actor. Sorry, but he was good in this. He's good. Yeah. Everyone's fucking great in this movie. And his evil is subtle. Yeah. and deep. Because you even question yourself about, like, maybe he does have the best intentions in his mind. Even though the back of your head knows he doesn't, he's yeah. going to fuck over you know, Matilda. And then Matilda kind of even kind of gets that, I think. Yep. Um, the, that, that Leon didn't. But Gary Oldman is just so on the nose with everything, and it's annoying to me. Yeah, and it's almost like a 2000 and, like, it's almost like a modern performance. It's basically. And a kind of like a, you know, a, a, a Guy Ritchie movie. With like a techno soundtrack oh, exactly. in the background where everyone has to scream because the music's turned up so loud. But to compare this to to another Gary Oldman villain performance, he does Mason uh, when he's Mason Verger in uh, Ridley Scott's Hannibal, mm-hmm. um, two thousand one or two thousand two. He's over the top in that as well, but it's appropriate because that movie isn't saying anything. That movie's not trying to say anything. It's just it's just trying to make money. It's just trying to make money. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's just a cash in sequel to to Science of the Lambs, mm-hmm. uh, a movie I hate. Science of the Lambs, a movie that will not show up on this list. It's at on all. my list. Does show up on my list too. Oh, you're being sarcastic. sarcastic. Yeah, uh, <sighs> that did not come through at all. <laughs> um, but you know, he's doing the same thing there, but it works there, and it doesn't work here because I don't know what why he was trying to do that and why he was he was going so over the top. I just feel like he he felt he was in a regular actioner, and it's not. But I agree with you. Just going back to that point of, you know, Luke Besson doesn't doesn't need it need to say anything. He doesn't. It's just like. He's a DEA agent who's selling drugs. This He's, guy takes pills and makes him go a little crazy. In Gary Oldman's performance, it makes him go too crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's just a hallmark part of the character. And there, there is those things. Like, that's what's great about this yeah. movie is, like, there's, there's little touches with each character. You know, Leon's milk, that's never explained. Why no, it's just... Why does he need two liters of milk? But it, it makes him, like, and that's why I bring back to, like, the very beginning of the discussion, that fantasy elements... Of just like these are very exoteric characters doing very you know bizarre, unnatural things, but it, it makes us know that these are people serving the plot, serving it's, serving the point, and it's world building. And I don't think that gets 100%. enough credit in in thinking about film now, obviously, but ever is that each of these each movie, even like realistic movies that are set in realistic places, like you know New York Pleasantville. City. <laughs> Like Pleasantville, like the Truman Show. It's a real place. 
Um, you know, it's New York City that belongs to this movie, and how exactly. does that and how does that work? It works, and in this movie, it works where cops shoot a missile into an apartment building. Oh yeah, an apartment to building. kill to kill one guy. An apartment building that that very clearly has has other people in it. A, a, a movie, a movie where Gary Oldman fires a bullet mere inches away from an old lady's head, and her reaction is to slowly turn and turn back. But it's such a well-crafted film it, that it's, it's it all fine. belongs. It all belongs. Yeah, and that's and you know just just to to sum it up, that's why it's 100 on this list because I think it's a good introduction. Action movies, horror movies. Those kind of general movies are going to be on my list, but when you have something to say, you know you're going to be on this list, and and this movie has has a lot to say. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so we're back for my. Number 100 movie. Oh, boy. Stanley Kubrick's 1999 erotic thriller. (laughs) That's what they said. Called uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, It is the story of Bill Harford, played by Tom Cruise, and his wife, Alice Harford, played by Tom Cruise's, at the time, real wife, Nicole Kidman, engaged in... a discussion of sexual mores of their marriage. And then Tom Cruise, I interpret, feels emasculated. Yeah. And I, I, goes I agree with that. on a hunt to have sex with something. I, I, I don't think, the, to me, the emasculation didn't play a pivotal part, but it's definitely a catalyst. Well, see, and I would argue that it's actually kind of what the point of the movie is. Ah. I'm, it's almost like we're going to have a discussion about this now. As I was watching it again, um, I kind of started to see it. Um, and this is not to play into the Me Too politics of the time. It actually seems like a very feminist movie because Tom Cruise is the biggest movie star in the world. And at the end of the movie, he is at the mercy of literally every woman that he comes in contact with. But that's a different conversation. Um, he ends up at a an orgy a very ritualized orgy full of very powerful people um, like Sidney Pollack. Um, and what? And the rest of the movie is the ramifications of, of, of being at that party. But he doesn't... I mean, I, I think an important point to say is he doesn't get to that party until an hour and 20 minutes into the film. There's a lot. Sure. I don't... I, don't, I really... I, I don't take the orgy has a significant uh, part. Of the, I mean, it's definitely to me a part, but it's not. I don't I, think everything circles around that. Well, so let's. I mean, let's just dive right into it. I really think that the idea of of Will Hartford's Bill Hartford's masculinity is at the core of this. Is at the core of this movie. Um, I think it's from two things very specifically. It's from the conversation he has with his wife about the fact that she was thinking about having sex with that other guy when they were on vacation that one time. But it also relates directly to the gang of white youths that body checks him into a car uh, that calls him, you know, derogatory sexual remarks and stuff, like on the street yells Yeah, very homophobic remarks. Um, And then later, Nicole Kidman's character tells him her dream where... 
her dream syncs up with the experience he just had at the orgy, and she puts the twist on it that everyone was laughing at him. Mm-hmm. Um, intercut those moments with Tom Cruise trying, almost having sex with those two girls at the, the, two, at the Christmas the party. Him almost having sex with the prostitute that propositions him on the street. Uh, Domino's character. Domino's character. Or Domino. That he um, encounters Lily Sobieski's character, which I think is just uh, Milch's daughter. Um, I'm not. I don't know if her name is yeah, her first name is given. Have, I don't have her. her but it doesn't make any difference. But I do. I do think she plays a plays a part in my interpretation of the movie. I think she does too, um, in the sense that these two tiny Asian men are getting to have sex, and he's not getting to have sex. He's after all of those things, he ends up at an orgy, where lots of people are having fairly standard issue Stanley Kubrick sex, um, in lushly decorated you know castle rooms and libraries and, and if you saw the original version of this movie they were obscured by really well placed cgi cloaked men is that true mm-hmm. i didn't see i that know version. that they're cgi'd but they were oh, okay they were definitely what to save like an nc-17 altered. rating yeah um and he doesn't have sex with anybody there and then after he gets emasculated again when he goes home and, and nicole kidman tells him about the dream he goes out and then tries to kind of relive his experience and goes back to the prost- goes back to Domino's house. Domino has AIDS now. Goes back to HIV positive. Yeah. HIV positive. But it's 1999, so it's, you know. It's a death sentence at the time. Yeah. Right. Um, goes back to, you know, bring the costume back. Um, and he finds that Lily Sobieski's character is actually, you know, Milch is prostituting her out. Um, and he never gets to have sex with anybody. Um, and women actually die to save his reputation. Um, if we're not to believe Ziegler's character, Ziegler says that it's unrelated. Right. But I think it is. But I think it's if it's not if it's unrelated for them. We're talking about the death of the we're talking about people, the death of the Mandy death of, of Mandy who right. dies of the overdose. Um, if it's unrelated to them, it's still meaningful to Bill Harford. Um, and at the end, when everything is when everything is over, he's kind of decided he's going to give it up. You get the impression he's decided he's going to give it up. Um, Ziegler tells him what is. He just has to deal with you know the facts of what is. He goes home. He sees the mask he wore that he thought he lost on his pillow and breaks down crying in front of his wife and tells her and tells her everything. And from that moment on, it's obvious that Nicole Kidman. Is now in control. The powerful of the, is now in control. The of the dominant one in the relationship, right? Um, you know, ending famously or not famously, but it's memorable with the. You know, there's one thing we have to do as soon as humanly, soon as humanly possible. Tom Cruise says, "What is it?" And she says, "Fuck." Cut to black. End of the movie. Um, none of those things, though, are why this movie is on my list. This movie is on my list because of the Ligeti piano piece that plays starting with the orgy scene on through building through all the moments of tension where tension is going to be built. You get that unbelievably spare piano score.
which I don't I think I saw it in 2000 you know around there when it was released on video finally um, the next day I went out and got the soundtrack because I needed to hear that song as the soundtrack for my going about the business of, of my living I just thought that was the most unbelievable way to approach life was with that single finger pounding piano line in like the back of my skull. So is there exactly a reason upon your reviewing of the movie? I believe you, I assume you watched it recently that, that why it punctuates it so why that, that, that score punctuates your own life experience so much. Like, is there something within the viewing of the movie that, did that for well, you, or is I mean, it just the score itself? That's that's a, a deep, dark question, Mario. Um, there's been I tried an un- to make that sound quiet. It did not. It doesn't. Work. We open a lot of beers on the show. Oh people, boy. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's it was just it speaks to me now in the sense that my musical taste has run um, closer to the spare now than it did back then. And, and, it's, I and think it's an I've incredibly been, spare score. Oh, it's, a, Spar- it's unbelievable. Very yeah. Um, there's music I listen to now that I didn't listen to back then that aligns perfectly with this. Um, and how, like, where what, would, what would that be? Exactly? You know, sing, you know, letting notes ring. And I talked a little bit about this, um, when we talked about Meet Joe Black, and it's going to be a running theme of this, of my list, is silence and space. And all of my favorite movies, most of my favorite movies, I won't say all of them, most of my favorite movies revel in space and quiet and and letting things linger and hang in the air um and this was maybe one of the first movies that i recognized that i liked that in that that appealed to me i I think that's 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 an interesting point in um that i have to ask you this film famously has a 400 day shoot the longest continuous shoot in film history in those sparse moments is it saying anything to you i mean it, the score itself is sparse but is the film it's a, resonating with you in any way i actually think it resonates in those moments more than it does in the moments right when people are talking because the talking is just the i think the script is oddly bad i don't know if that's no, and, and frederick Raphael didn't do any i mean he's the one the co-writers of kubrick, yeah, yeah, yeah with do kubrick. anything of, of note uh, no. besides this he did a few adaptations beforehand but and nothing that Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman say to each other throughout the whole movie it's really very interesting it seems like fairly standard issue oh, they, relationship they giggle. talk they giggle through half of their their performance <laughs> I mean that, that's one of the things I noted I actually stayed up until four in the morning re-watching this gotta do. that's um, perfect time to watch it <laughs> yeah exactly um, they giggle through half of their performance it's, it's not stilted necessarily to me but it's it's definitely a very well, it got a lot of criticism for it, like saying that people thought this was, like I said, this is an erotic thriller. People thought it was going to be very erotic, and it feels very stilted in a lot of no, ways. No, exactly. You know, the sex isn't really very interesting. The nudity isn't really very interesting. It was a comment I made when I was rewatching it. And that, and and just to, for anybody that might be listening to this who's younger who wasn't aware of or younger or who just doesn't give as much of a shit about film. Yeah. yeah. Like when they were marketing this movie, they marketed this movie as like. You're gonna fucking see, you know, not, 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 you're gonna see Nicole Kidman naked. I mean, mm. if Tom Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are the power couple, yeah. they're gonna be fucking. They're gonna be doing hardcore fucking. It's not you, hardcore, but I mean, they're gonna be doing fucking in this movie. This is like what we're selling this movie yeah. on, and it's not. And it's not at all. No, and so that's the other thing that I think, and that points directly to the other thing I think this movie is um, 
why this movie's on my list is I'm a big I'm a big Kubrick guy, and I I am not but like I when like Kubrick. Things. He almost seems like a painter a lot of times. So I think the thing that I think is great about this movie is that and even though there's a lot of nudity in it, the nudity is always part of the composition. Like almost nobody films naked people better than Stanley Kubrick. And see, I'd it's not see sexualized, but no. it's filmed unbelievably. See, that's where I diverge from you. I think this is visually one of the ugliest films I've seen. Uh, it's, Explain. It's, it's it's crowded in many parts. Very um, crowded. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's crowded. It's there. There, the the aesthetic to itself. There, there's there's no. Um, real understanding of well, not understanding. There's there's no real composition to a color palette. Um, a lot of the the Greenwich Village scenes are mm-hmm. noisy. There's a lot of noise in in the shot composition. Um, the orgy scene is is a little too symmetrical for my taste. Mm. Um, but I think that's I think he did that all that stuff on purpose. And, and, and I would I would say I would say you're you're, yeah. you're possibly right there. I I don't think I don't think it's it's visually a mess. Accidentally, Kubrick. Right, didn't do anything on accident. Well, I think it's interesting to think about the idea about the idea. Um, I mean, that it's crowded. Because think about think about two specific things. Think about all of the apartment scenes in this movie are very. There's no depth to them. Oh, think no. about like a Clockwork Orange, which we may talk about later. Um, I'm actually going to be talking about Clockwork Orange in a few minutes right now. But oh, there you not go. Too heavily. When they go to the writer's house, you know, when the car, when they're driving in the car, and they end up at the writer's house. Um, Think about those rooms. You know what I mean? He's shooting them like flat, like on a stage. Almost. Oh, everything, everything that's moving. But it all really goes flat. far. You know mm. what I mean? You can see through the arches. You can see back into other rooms. And this movie, there's you don't get any of that. When he enters Domino's apartment, it's just Domino's apartment. You're just in that room. They're on top of each other. Their faces are literally touching. Yeah. Think about when uh, when at Ziegler's party, it's it's lit by. Christmas lights. I mean, which I which I think is a lot of people had a problem with that. A lot of reviewers were just kind of like, "This is really tacky and gaudy and just but strange." I, but, but I, I and and see, I uh, like I read the critical analysis of a lot of this film. A lot of this film, this film was maligned. You know, this film was, was yeah, trash. Yeah, it had awkward reviews, and they said that it was it was it was completely unerotic. Well, I've got one of them here. So Stephen Hunter from the Washington Post. I thought this was a particularly good line. Called it sad. And uh, rather than bad, and that it feels creaky, ancient, hopelessly out of touch, infatuated with the hot taboos of his youth, and unable to connect with that twisty thing contemporary sexuality has become. Interesting. Um, I, have, I have a similar criticism on this film. Um, the criticism, and not similar criticism in the sense of like being saying it's shit, but um, and this is where kind of why I just how I interpreted. The yeah, movie. yeah, go. Um, um, there's an interesting scholarly article I read, read by Tim Creditor from Introducing Sociology, um, University of California Press. I think this is in 2000, so it's around a year after the release. Um, you know, talking about the setting of the film, he says the meticulous rendered setting of the film, the luxurious apartments and the sumptuous mansions, are meant to raise eyebrows. And I think it's visually ugly. It's a visually stark film to me. It's flat. It's gaudy in many ways. But Kubrick intended that. Yeah. And I think this movie, I disagree with you that this movie is about um, Harford's masculinity. Mm-hmm. I think it's more a critique on 
class mm. to me. That's fair. And, and you the, get a lot of that there's, lower it's, class. It's, 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 it's a very, there, there's various, three very stark classes in tail. Um, we, have, we have the Harvard class. The, the Alice and Bill are very well off people. Mm-hmm. But in every way, they have to show their wealth. Yeah, that's interesting. And when we're introduced, we get multiple scenes of Bill walking through his apartment to his bedroom. And he's walking through all these gaudy expressions of, from Alice's, you know, we can assume from Alice's failed gallery of food and, and still lifes, but they're mm. just, they're everywhere. Nothing fits, but it's, it's definitely signs of privilege, of, of, of wealth. Yep. And there's still space, but it feels clouded because they're saying a lot. They're trying to, they're trying to show a lot. Yeah. Um, and then when they get to Ziegler's uh, party, Ziegler, Ziegler's definitely of a class above them. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's that old established wealth versus what you'd only assume is Harford's new wealth. Where, he, he in can, the, where the new wealth still serves your wealth. Exactly. Yep. It's, it's gaudy. It, it seems tacky. But it's interesting. But, it's, it's, but you have a better visual palette almost. Like yeah. it, it might be lit by Christmas lights, but you still have these open marble hallways these well-constructed shots. But consider this, though. Consider two things, which I think is really interesting. That's a really interesting point. Consider the idea that when they're at Ziegler's party, when Nicole Kidman's... When Alice is dancing with that guy, whatever his name is... Um, oh, uh, the Hungarian... Yeah, the Hungarian Sandor guy. Um, Sandvist. That's a, that's a great scene. That's the best scene. Uh, that's a great scene, and it actually is kind of unfortunate that they keep cutting away for you know to see Tom to move to put this little story nugget in there that we can store away for later with you know Tom Cruise and and um, with Harvard and Ziegler and the and Mandy. Um, the decoration that they're dancing in front of is a star, a fairly innocuous but it's made of like sticks mm. so they've got every other part of that house they've got these really long symmetrical lines of christmas lights going down the walls but they're dancing in front of this um this sh- almost shoddily made abstract looking star that's got all these different color lights in it it almost seems to suggest it almost seems to kind of suggest that that there's like a brokenness inherent in you know perhaps both of these people's personalities, but in the relationship between the super upper class and, you know, Alice and Bill's kind of middling upper class. And, and that's exactly, and that's exactly how, how I interpreted it. Like, like Kreder says later on in the articles, like the real pornography in this film is this lingering depiction of the shameless naked wealth of oh, I know. Manhattan and its obscene effect on society and human action. Mm-hmm. And to me, when he goes... I mean, he's he's looking for some sort of visceral... He's looking for a human connection, obviously. He feels like he doesn't have that with Alice anymore after her talk of, of, of wishing to have had the affair with the naval officer. So he goes and sees Domino. And, you know, that shot is, is so tightly constructed. Like, like you said, they're on top of one another. Um, he gets the call from his wife, and then he leaves, and he just still pays her. Because at the same time, he thinks of her... Like, he, he maybe has some sort of not respect for her, but maybe he still sees her as a human being, but he still thinks of her as property. She's still of that level beneath him. He's, 
he dehumanizes her in a way. He says, like, you are lower than me. And then that's immediately followed by him, you know, going to see Nick, going to get the costume. And then he goes to the orgy scene where he's then pointed out because he is out of that class. And then that Ziegler makes a point of saying that's how we knew that you are. You know, that's how they knew that you weren't a part of this because you came to this in a cab. Yeah, And you exactly. left the receipt no for your rental tux in in the you know the pocket of your coat. Yeah, and and Nick spending not Nick. Um, sorry, Bill's spending money everywhere when they're in that scene. Like he splits the hundred dollar bill in half, showing a yep. disregard for money. But he's still not in this world. He wants so desperate. And it, well, it kinda, consider it the ties idea back to your masculinity argument, but not sexual masculinity. It ties back to. But it could all be part of the same masculinity. No, it's no, all exactly. trying to build this, you know, well, phallus like no, temple to himself. And that I'm not, and I'm not saying that that you were you were arguing the sexual masculinity. It, it definitely is is an exploration of masculinity. But I think. It is the failing of the critical interpretation of this film is that it is not like sex is a is a catalyst for the action, but to mm. me personally, it's it's definitely about you know that 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 twist from eighties nineties excess um, and the pursuit of wealth and just knowing that no matter how much money you have, you're still outside of that class. You know they yeah. And that that's how I read this. Film. Well, it's not even that. It's no matter how much money you have, you're still a person. Like you're still yourself unless you decide to to not be anymore. And that's to what, be represented totally like Ziegler is represented totally by the space of his house and the space that he occupies in in, in society. Whereas Tom Cruise is still, you know, um, so when you see the only times you see Ziegler is in his humongous bathroom, is in his humongous foyer, is in that humongous billiard room. Whereas Tom Cruise's doctor's office, you're showing them tight. It's all really tight. Yeah, exactly. His office is tight. Where he does his examinations is tight. Um, when he goes to that, you know, to the house of that dying guy on the night that everything happens, um, when that woman tells him that he she loves him, um, who was that? Uh, that's uh, Marie Richardson. Yeah. So yeah. Marion. Um, she, their faces are like touching each other. And the whole time when he's talking to Ziegler at the end of the movie in the billiard room, they're across the table from each other. There's this great expanse of experience and experience, wealth, um, security, both sexually and financially and, and class perhaps class. morally. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes the – not to cut you off. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go um, what makes the ending to be interesting is the fact that – all through, you know, early on, Bill Bill sees sees Nick. He thinks Nick kind of like gave up. Nick Nick was a medical school student, you know, a, a compatriot yeah, of his yeah. who left the school Good and call. is now a piano player doing what yeah. assume he loves. He has four children. He has a wife. He's just doing it to support the life. We don't really know a lot about Nick. Played by Todd Field, by the way. Which, I, which is I, great. Yeah, which is funny. Todd Field in the bedroom and uh, Little Children director. I, little Children. Yep, Little Children. Might be... I don't, it isn't. It, little children will be discussed later on. Um, in the bedroom? Is it in the bedroom on your list? No, me neither. No. Um, but I, I see the pursuit of Bill's masculinity in the same way, but more from a class system. Mm. And like he's trying to do that. He realizes he's outside of that class system. And in the end, he re, not resigns himself, but in the end, he he accepts the fact that like he'll he'll accept the human the human side of him. And that when she says, like, we have to do something, 
as soon as possible. We have to fuck. And that's, you know, him cutting away the heirs. Because Sidney Pollock's yeah. Victor is all about heirs. Like, he doesn't give a fuck about Mandy. Like, everything. Sex, sex is dehumanized. Sex is an ownership to him. Like, the women, cho- the prostitutes choose their choose the men they're going to sleep with, but they're still fucking property. Mm-hmm. And Victor doesn't have that human connection. In the end, Bill, to me, it's kind of like a hopeful ending in a weird way. And that Bill accepts he's not of that world. And he, you know, him and Alice are going to fuck each other. They want each other because they accept like, this is our plot in life mm. where people, we still have this over them. We have an attachment to our humanity mm. that this, you know, they might not be, in the hardship of something like Domino, who's, you know, going to die, like has a death sentence from the HIV positive, you know, 1999. Yeah. yeah. Die of AIDS back then. They're they're So they're not weighed underneath the hardships. They're still privileged, but they're not so privileged that they no longer have a touch with the possibility of loss, but the possibility of. of sure. Death. That's interesting because they're not so privileged that the, you can do this and just kind of walk back into your life. Like nothing ever happened. Yeah. And, and like, I think that's, that's hallmarked by, you know, Pollock's, uh, Victor's response to Bandy's death is just like, it was going to fucking happen. Yeah. And that, that scene before ruins Bill. Like when he's just staring at her body in the morgue. Sure. He's not, it's somebody he met once. Well, I think it's, or it's twice, I should it's say twice. Really interesting thing about that scene, because I think it's a good scene in the morgue is that he tries to kiss her. Like he's been just craving a kind of, um, visceral equalizer to Alice's dream and mm. Alice's fantasy. He's been craving an outlet for his resentment and his jealousy and his anger, and he almost takes it on a dead body. Yeah, and that's and that's what's interesting to me too is like her her initial discussion of like wanting to have sex with and having an affair with a naval officer, somebody who's still establishing themselves in life, but still kind of like tied to that working class, but mm-hmm. maybe more, but definitely still more in their class of people than middle upper middle. He's an officer. Class. Yeah, he's an. He officer. makes a point saying it's an officer. He's an officer, yeah. but still he's. The Navy is still kind of like that working man's association. But then she has that dream later of like that post-apocalyptic setting where everyone's fucking her. And he's, you know, watching that. Well, and, it's, the it's, or- just yeah, her, it's the orgy setting. Yeah, and it's just her attachment still to the real world. These mm-hmm. are two people who are desperate to get to this upper echelon of people. Well, in, that's... My, in, my, in my reading, and, and that ending is them just going, fuck this. You know, right, like, well, that's... Re- like, real... we're people... We're where we are, you know, so we, we have our privileges, we have our wealth, but still we will fuck because we care about one another. And it's interesting because for, I guess, you know, it keeps being interesting. It's, you know, the more you talk about this stuff, sometimes the more it reveals is that hers, Alice is having fantasies. He is actually trying to go out and kind of do outdo the fantasy, which is to, to do it. Mm-hmm. And he keeps failing at that so it's almost like they have to they have to meet in the middle yeah and and meeting in the middle is the is meeting in the middle in this world is actually accepting what you have and recognizing who is in front of you and saying like yeah that could do that and but it's interesting because he he she has her dreams and he has his attempts and i'm using quotation marks right now with a pen attached to my finger (laughs) he has his attempts to do it but every time he sees those attempts successfully done he's mortified yep um the call from Alice, I don't think, perpetuates the fact that he's not going to sleep with Domino. I, I think from the moment he enters there, yeah. he's not going to sleep with her. He just wants 
someone who wants him, even if it's for monetary gain. And then when he sees those two Japanese businessmen with the relationship with uh, Milik's daughter, mm-hmm. who they've reached some sort of agreement, he's mortified by that. I know. Um, so yeah, he's pursuing it. He's pursuing the fantasy. It's just no longer in that dream state. It's 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 in real life. But once that fantasy's fulfilled, he's fucking disgusted by it. You know, these these are both people who who crave that kind of like ownership. Not necessarily ownership, but crave that physical intimacy, but also in the same way, somewhat ownership. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think it's incidental that he's a physician. Mm. So he's having, and she kind of calls him on that, that he has this physical intimacy with lots of different people all the time. And he just can't see, he doesn't he has, relate he that, that he has, physical intimacy to sex. He, But he does relate that physical intimacy to power. And that he is in charge. He gets his money from this. He calls all the shots. You know, it's life or death. You know, what I mean, he's got yeah. patients that die. You know, that he's been helping live, um, and not realizing that he has the same power there that Victor has with the women he's fucking. But Victor gets his nut, not doesn't get like money from it. You know, mm. like like in in a similar way, Bill Bill does have that power, but he doesn't want that. He he wants he's craving intimacy. Yeah. He's craving not intimacy in, in the sexual sense. Like we said, the critical failing. He's craving intimacy in the fact that he just wants a person who fucking cares about him. Like they're they're trying. It's established from the beginning, you know. While they're rushing around, trying to look great for this this party for Ziegler, and trying to be ready and on time for this party with Ziegler, that they're craving a life that they haven't reached yet. But really, deep down, they're craving just someone who gives a shit. Well, you could. I mean, that's interesting because in that first opening scene. She's peeing with him standing there. Yeah, and they're like they have it already. It doesn't get any more intimate than no, that. They Even have it like you know all the all the sex and you know all the the intoxicated conversations that they have. Does it get any more intimate than her peeing with him standing there and wiping yeah. herself with him standing there? No, yeah. it just takes it takes two days of of you know the worst sexual degradation yeah. to kind of say, oh yeah. Like, you know, we have to do to kind of get this back on track. We actually have to fuck. Yeah. We don't have to. It's not about realizing fantasies now. It's about getting, you know. Removing out. all the fucking layers of bullshit. All the artifice and just fucking each other. Yeah. The, the, the thousands of paintings on our walls and just our two naked bodies. What? I mean, and I know it's a little thing, but like the idea, I don't want to relate fucking too closely to drinking beer. But like I always relate everything. To there's the three beer. instances where Tom Cruise's character, who's supposed to be like the upper crust, you know, he goes into the jazz club. He's like, I'll oh yeah, have, Nick orders I'll the vodka a, and tonic, and I'll he gets have the beer. a beer. Yeah, and then he goes home one time he, every, and he drinks every a night, beer. Every and night he goes home and he, he drinks has a, a bud. A bill? Is it a bud? No, it's I a thought bud, it was a yeah. oh. He drinks a bud. Shows how much I know. Nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. I don't know what people beer. were like. I don't know what the high end beer was in nineteen ninety nine. I don't know if there was such a thing as high end beer in nineteen ninety nine. Sure, it was a Heineken. Right? Yeah, or Rolling Rock. Um, Rolling but, Rock is still the highest. Uh, <laughs> all the green, all the green bottles are the highest. Oh, yeah. Um, but he drinks a Bud. You know what I mean? Like, and, but he just does, and it's in his hand. I think it's interesting that it's in his hand. Yeah, and they're, and they're still you know like, I mean? they're still it's kids. just in front of him. They sit there and ha- they smoke weed. And they've know, only they, been they, married they, for nine years. Yeah. And they're smoking weed, you know, just fucking still acting like kids. Because they're kids still. Like, yeah. they're, they're, still, they're still figuring shit out. The thing I have to bring up, though, is 
is we have this this interpretation of the movie. Like to you, the music struck and kind of like you have this interpretation of a mask of a masculinity. Um, I have interpretation of of the the, class. the, the social yeah. hierarchy. Um, Kubrick dies six or seven. I mean, I, I don't want to speculate too much, but I think this is a movie that that demands speculation in 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 the fact of, well, he, of the history of it. He dies a few days after the first showing of it. Well, right? no, he died before it got released. He died before it got released, but I think he dies only a few days after his so first, he had, his first cut is shown. He had. I think I don't know if it's his first cut. I think it was actually probably one of the closer to his because he showed it to Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise yeah. and some of the producers. But then he showed another cut to somebody to I think um, some of the other producers or somebody else so the speculation is that it was a fairly finished okay it was a fairly finished piece here's my point though is, is, is we see a lot of the critical analysis of it call it call it a failing as an erotic thriller do we think that this movie successfully does anything it sets out to do ultimately yes and I will say, maybe I should even let you speak first because this might be a good ending to the podcast, but I'll just say it now. Is that oh, I, I, have, I just have one more thing to bring up, though. I just have I think one it's, little, sure. little side comment to bring up I think before it's, we end. No, no, we can keep going. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's... Oh, I six, about uncoming. I think it's... Oh, yeah, I don't know what, what that the was about. fuck is... Actually, okay. actually before, before we get, before get into there, who, what the fuck is going on with Alan Cumming? Well, I think that's a... I, Alan I Cumming, if anybody doesn't know, there's, there's know. a scene... There's a scene... Um, where where Tom Cruise is, you know, Harvard is trying to, and we're just doing this because you know we're going to end the podcast on this discussion of if it sure, works. Sure, sure, sure. But he's trying to unravel the things, and they the, the what happened to the orgy. Nick has disappeared, and there's a scene where he goes the desk clerk played by Alan Cumming. What the fuck is he laughing what at? What the fuck is Alan Cumming doing? Well, and you get the impression that. You're left with the impression that maybe he knows something. No, he doesn't. But he doesn't know he anything. He doesn't know anything. I mean. I don't know. There's who well, brings up the bigger question: Is anybody good in this movie? Yes. No. No. Yeah. Todd Field's good. Todd Field's but solid. He's, but he's only in he's serviceable. ten minutes total. I think Pollock is perfectly slimy. He's but sophisticatedly slimy. Yeah, I think he's okay. Scott, um, not Scott Dumont. Oh, uh, I, I do not even want to try his name, but the Mister Mister Millick raids Sky Dumont. No, Sky Dumont is uh, the Hungarian. Yeah. No, that that's a great scene. Oh, Raid Serbazerzerzer. Yeah. I that. Edit it. We really apologize. No, let's leave that in. We really apologize for the sorry. fact that we cannot pronounce his name. He um, was good. Yeah, yeah. That scene is. I think he's good. Fucking hilarious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but let's. I mean, but, is but, but Tom that, Cruise, Nicole Kidman, um, you know, are they're they're fine. Are they, are they, they, they serve the plot, but I just. What is Alan Cumming doing? I don't know. I, I think this this begs mentioning, because you could look at all those performances and go like Nicole Kidman plays like like plays kind of like drunk just, well in the opening. And scene. I think the script but Alan was bad. Is yeah, fucking crazy in that scene. And I'm not sure why. What is going on? And I think if you're gonna make the case that that Stanley Kubrick didn't finish this movie, there has gotta be another take of that scene. Because there does, has to be. He does 95 of takes of Tom Cruise and a red door. He does. He looks at that take of Alan Cumming has the desk clerk and goes, nailed that's it. it. That's what, the one. But that's why I ask, what is what is going on in that scene? Because we know Kubrick is so meticulous. Here's what. I, what is go, like? That's the one scene. I'm like, why is this happening? So, I'll use this opportunity to kind of make a larger point in that I think he's. I just think Kubrick is old. So I think he, I think he told Alan Cumming 
to sell it like he doesn't know what's like he might know what's going on but maybe he doesn't know what's going on as like a tension builder because you get a lot of right after that scene he goes to you know there's a doctor's office scene and then he goes to the house again where he's handed the letter that says you which know, is great it's a scene of no dialogue and, and you get more Leggetti you get more of the piano mm-hmm. um, that one piano line I think it's from I think it's a tension I mean, building he goes, scene he goes back I, I think he goes back to the the um he goes back to the costume to, shop after that. And right, right, right. That's a decently done. That's like sure. a, that's a perfectly serviceable it's, scene. But you get this. You get this tension building, and I think he wanted him. I think he wanted it to be ambiguous as to whether or not he knows something to kind of start implicating more people around him. But he's like a giggling schoolgirl. Well, that's, Alan Cumming is. A but you get that also in, that in what's the waitress doing at the diner? Like, why is she being so weird and coy about Nick's whereabouts? Well, well she's. But she think, doesn't want to give up too much. Which, which well, I also, why? Another part I find funny about this movie is I love the fact that, that Harvard keeps showing the fact that he's a doctor like it's a goddamn detective's badge. Remember that? Anybody knows what that card is. Yeah, oh, like, this is my medical. And everyone's just like, hmm, guys, okay. It's my medical license badge. It's like, oh, sorry, Joe Friday. I'm going to tell you everything <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, but, I mean, you could say the same thing about her. Like, why is she being so cagey? What's If if she's just like, oh, I don't I don't know where he lives. Clearly, I think there's there, – He's trying to intimate that he had sex, that they had sex. Yeah. Um, but who gives a shit? If his family is in Seattle, like, why are we supposed to feel some kind, any kind of moral, like, disgust at him having sex with this oh, woman? Exactly. So she could just easily give it up. And but just, I think it's, I think it's Kubrick just kind of being like a little bit like this. You know, the, the Stephen Hunter review says that Kubrick is just a little bit out of touch at this point. That he's not one hundred percent clued in. I don't think. To I don't think I agree. How that's going? I, I mean, there's there's he's a big not compositionally out of touch, but he's. Um, narratively out of touch but i don't know if i necessarily i mean there's there's that i don't know not that infamous like arlie emery quote where arlie emery says like kubrick talked to him he said the movie was a piece of shit and that he felt like the critics were gonna have him for lunch and that like Cruz and kidman had, mm-hmm. you know fucking hung him out to dry which you could i mean you could make that argument i guess and i think i do because yeah. i i think this movie has so much to say and so much to say well but there's that entire like middle act after the orgy before like it comes back together with with um the conversation actually before he goes to the hospital and finds out about Mandy's death yeah where everything is just so fucking I don't even know how to describe Wait, it I mean it just it strikes me like like I I looked at how visually you know talking about how visually ugly the movie is but like he he you know Kubrick built Greenwich Village at Pinewood Studios. You yeah. know, he didn't need to do this. And then he just suddenly has this jarring, disjointed 30-minute stretch, you know, with, with the one scene where he goes back to the back yeah. to the mansion, but, like, nothing works there. Well, you can me. argue, I think, that one of the larger problems of the movie is um, that the climax of the movie is really that conversation they have after they've smoked the, they've smoked the weed. Um, you know when he finds oh, out did. that he had had that she had, had I mean that's kind of like the tipping point of the movie mm-hmm. that's where he goes into the other direction and I don't think she's well, I think it's the driving action of the first act she, I mean, I but I think it's the driving action also the rest I mean if you if we're downplaying like the necessity of the orgy mm-hmm. like really it's Tom Cruise feels threatened in a lot of ways here by the guy you know by seeing her well, dancing that's, that's with that rising, guy that's the rising action sure 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 but it also is kind of the fall I mean Everything after that can be considered the falling action as no, well. I, I, no, but I, you I would could. There. But you could say that. 
because if the orgy scene's not doing what it's supposed to do... I'm doing a really do, scrunched face right now on this It's like this, mm, very squinty. Mm. If the orgy scene's not doing what it's supposed to do, and the threats on his life are bullshit, and the threats Which on his are. life... Which they are. are, I think. But even if they aren't bullshit, like Ziegler's telling him, and they well, are... Well, Ziegler tells him they are bullshit. But they're cinematically bullshit, too. Because mm. it's really just kind of very silly for this woman in this mask who's naked to be like, our lives are in danger. Yeah, and like you the, know, the fact that the mask shows up on his bed is just like anybody could fucking but so lay to, a mask to go. The, so this is, but this is kind of the dividing line of the movie. This conversation, Nicole. I don't think Nicole Kidman sells it. And, no, and Stanley Kubrick spends so much time on her face that I don't think he sells it either. In the sense that I don't think he's doing the work that he would normally have been doing. No, no, no like I agree. if you think about everything else that he's ever done, that's had that's supposed to have had this kind of heightened level of anxiety and tension. Um, he's never shooting. He's never shooting one person in close-up, you know, with no light. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, he's never does it, but he did it, but he did it there. I mean, I think because he had Nicole Kidman to look at instead of Arlie Emery where you needed, you know, he needed to be yelling at Matthew Modine or, or, or Vincent D'Onofrio or, or famously in the shining. He had, um, not Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall. It is Shelley Duvall. Every time I say Shelley, we're going to keep this in. Every time I say Shelley Duvall, I think of the, um, from Cheers, the first, the first actress in Cheers. Shelley Long? Shelley Long. We should, we should the Shining would have been way better if Shelley Long was in yeah. it. Yeah, we should keep that in, by the way. But he, he famously, like, kept Shelley Duvall in those shots until, like, he got real frustration and terror because that's the thing so if you compare the nicole kidman during that speech to shelly duvall doing anything in the shining it's not even comparable she's like she is filling the whole screen with her unbelievably complex emotions which are both real and acted because she was terrorized in that movie nicole kidman is filling the screen and shelly duvall is fantastic in that movie she's great even without even without like the the insane amount of takes, like Shelley Duvall's yeah, she's fantastic, criminally she's, underrated. Yeah, um, Nicole Kidman is not doing what she needs to do. No, no, neither is Cruise. Neither is Cruise, though. Right, I don't think so either. But again, he sh- and he shoots, but he shoots Tom Cruise shirtless in this kind of like close to medium shot, casually with his arm on his knee, just like sitting there. Yeah, like when has. When has Stanley Kubrick ever shot something so casual in his whole life? And when has he ever been satisfied with Tom Cruise kind of giggle acting his way through a performance like he did in most of the 80s and 90s? Right. Like, like some of those scenes don't don't stand for that. But, but that's, I mean, that's why I asked, does, does this movie succeed? I think it succeeds only in the sense that it's still a Stanley Kubrick movie. It's still very obviously a Stanley Kubrick movie. And to watch it is to still get to watch somebody shoot a movie in a way that literally nobody else is going to shoot a movie. So would you say that of, of the movies you see of Stanley Kubrick, does this one do Stanley Kubrick the least of the movies that made an impact on you? It's hard. Yeah, I would argue. Yes, because I would argue, I don't love Barry. I don't think Barry Lyndon's an emotional movie. I don't think, um, I don't like Full Metal Jacket. Um, really at all I think it's a ho- it's a big huge pile of horrible you know military movies cliches I think this movie he's reaching for some kind of humanistic emotional truth 
I don't know if he gets it, but you still get to watch Stanley Kubrick deal with marriage and deal with relationships and deal with what he thinks is real sex um, in a way that he never did in any other movie. Yeah. I think I think for those reasons, it's still a successful movie, and we're still happy to have it. Yeah, and it's still a movie that, you know, today raises discussion. So. Well, we just did it here today. All right. Yeah. I think that's it um, for... Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, pivotalfilmpodcast uh, at gmail.com. Go to our website, our website. Um, pivotalfilm.com. And, um, uh, you know, actually, after having both of these beers, I would suggest if you're in the East Coast area, make your way to Tilted Barn. They are fucking top notch. They are on a dirt road. It's fun. Yeah. Drink go, a Tilted Barn. a little bit off the road. Go see a movie. Get some Tilted Barn. Drink it. Until talk next about week. It. Your pivotal Film. Clink. You didn't know that, was Ha, 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 ha.